This is Monica Perez joined once again for our final installment of our series on the Tavistock Institute is Courtney Turner. And we are going to talk about what's happening now, what you can see in the news, in the world that comes straight out of Tavistock. Right, Courtney? How are you doing? I am doing well, thank you. How are you? Fine, thank you. But I actually asked um, a friend and did a little perusing myself to send me some uh, headlines just straight out of like the Tavistock Institute right now. And we were Ooh. both like, what the heck? I mean, I'm literally just going to read you one thing on the name of the article uh, of this article is Tavistock Awakening Organizations. And it refers to the century of the self, which I don't know if you remember that. It was a BBC documentary. It was great. It was about Freud. It says, but this is the century of the group. Nothing could scare me more. Nothing could be more obviously collectivist. And then another article, it says, uh, it's time for the Gnostic recusivists or something. Uh, anyway, it's about just fomenting Gnosticism, which I still have a hard time truly defining, but it's literally written on one of the front page articles in the Tavistock. So I'm dying to dig into Tavistock and the here and now. That's crazy um, because I feel like everything that leads up to now in Tavistock builds up to that. That's like all of their group dynamics research, all of their, even their very early journals that like the first Humanist Manifesto, it was all about being man-centered. It was co-authored by John Dewey. I don't even know where we left off last time. I know, I know. I actually meant to listen to the last five minutes of our conversation. <laughs> Let's see, where did we leave off? That's actually probably a good place to start just because the first Humanist Manifesto was in 1933 we did go through all of John Dewey and how he's connected to Stanley G. Hall and William James and Wilhelm Bundt. Um, but the whole point of that was that man no longer believed that, that they didn't believe that man had a soul in the biblical sense of the word. And it was all about being man-centered. Um, and then it led to the Sixth International Congress of Philosophy at Harvard University, which was uh, before the Humanist Manifesto. Um, but it was where they stated that soul or consciousness is now of very little importance. Behavioralism saying the funeral dirge while material, the smiling heir arranges a suitable funeral for them. So this is very much like the Gnostic type premise. Um, of course, uh, we, so yeah, I don't know where we left off, but we, we did start with the, we did cover the Tavistock Clinic, right? The Tavistock Institute of Medical Psychology. Yeah, that was in the origin. That was in the earlier days. Reset my timeline here. What was happening kind of with Tavistock in the 60s? I know, I don't know if you had this in your list, but I know that Mick Jagger's first girlfriend, Marianne Faithful, I think her father was at the Tavistock Institute. I think she was the one who was a masoch, as in masochism. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, yeah, she was. When, and he went to London School of Economics, they and I just wonder, I, I don't even you know, know if he knows. Like, I'm just saying yeah. it's kind of funny that I just feel like they, the cultural, you know, the counterculture was. was a Tavistock creation, which may make sense because 
like when you look at the anti-war movement and I, if you hear some of the hidden tapes of Nixon, it seems like Nixon is legit old school and doesn't want this stuff. Like, it's not like he's in on the CIA plot that like Gloria Steinem works for the CIA. Like that was, or the Students for mm-hmm. Democracy or whatever work for the CIA. They were behind some of the yeah. protests. They were creating that dialectic. But it just shows you that like this thing goes deep. Like there are different levels. And I feel like maybe the answer is, Tavistock and like the mothership and the CFR and that kind of stuff coming out of England was really driving that cultural revolution. And people like Nixon weren't even aware that it was, you know, a level of the chessboard kind of higher than he was. You know, I didn't do too much investigating on Nixon and how aware he was. Oh, no, I'm just I'm just pointing out like Tavistock could be the hidden hand that even our own face jobs don't know about. They don't have any contact with it. They know the CIA exists, but they don't know that the CIA's agenda might be set by some international or foreign organization, or maybe the UK does run the US. I just don't know. Well, I actually, I think that Tavistock was working with a lot of players from the CIA, of course, the OSS, then it became the CIA. Um, just before we get to that, I I think it's interesting to note, just because it's related to that and kind of set the tone, there was, in 1942, there was a war office board. So this was for World War II. They were setting the tone for, you know, all the the psychological warfare group. And there was an act, all the developments and all the techniques were from this Tavistock group. And uh, their methods were later developed for use by the Civil Service Selections Board and Unilever, many of those types of companies. And it was a scheme devised by the British Army psychiatrists during World War II to select potential officers of the British Army. I won't go too much into that because that's like a whole tangent, but it was pretty interesting because it's where a lot of these like psychological testing comes from. It comes out of these war boards uh, for World War II. So you're saying that Tavistock was involved in how to choose the officers for yes. the UK? and they actually had a division in uh, the British uh, Army in and the psych- psychological warfare unit. Because now, like, corporations and stuff do give, some of them at higher levels anyway, actually, I think it's probably commonplace at this point that they're doing psych tests. Yeah. You know, for like promotions and stuff. Well, a lot of that comes out of Tavistock also, because that comes out of like the group dynamics, you know, with Kurt Lewin and with right. John Rawling Reese and Wilford Byan and Eric Trist. Just as an aside, like I have some of those things are just crap, but some of them, you know, are kind of valid. Like this person would be a good leader or this person would fit into our culture. I mean, I guess it, it can't it can't be totally invalid or right. exactly hang it around. Work. And I think it's less about whether or not they're valid. I think it's more about what's the intention behind it. Yes, right. So I don't think that the discoveries they made were, like, all full of crap, you know? Like, yeah, I think yeah. they, they discovered a lot of very accurate things, and that's why they're so effective in social engineering the masses. And that also points out that so I'm sure this is hand in hand with like what World Economic Forum probably relies heavily on this stuff when they discover like the future of labor or whatever. But it just shows you that if you're if you're setting the rules, businesses just follow them. Like you could say capitalism is just figuring out the rules and capitalizing on them. You know what I mean? So you can get massive adoption of all of this stuff, DEI, ESG, whatever, psych stuff. 
just because you think that's, as a businessman, you think that's the environment you have to operate in. It's like almost a self-fulfilling. That's why I think they spend so much money on propaganda is to like get us to think like this is the future. And then you get managers to implement this stuff. Every consultant under the sun, Bain or whatever, will tell you to do this stuff. It's the future. And then it just becomes it. So I don't even think it's sinister or this conspiracy that involves 100,000 people. It just has to be, you know, whoever sets the tone for expectations. Futurists. I think futurists. You know what that is? Yeah. Yeah. And most of, most of the people at Tavistock were futurists. In fact, that was like right, okay. most of the names of their, like, their journals had futurists in them or futures or something. Yeah, they act like it's prediction, but it's it's planning. planning. That's why they're such, that's why they're so precious. They're so good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty easy to predict the future when you plan it. So, um, yeah, they call them psychological pointers. Uh, they were used to help highlight areas, psychological members of the um, war boards. Wow, that's crazy. It's like if you pick the right psychological profile, you know the answer. It's like you want, if you want psychos on the front lines, just test for that. Right, exactly. And that's what was so interesting about it because they, they call them intelligence test, but they were really, right. uh, they were, they really weren't. Yeah. It was war office selection boards. That's, that's what the actual office was called. And they weren't, they were tests of mental ability and so they included verbal, nonverbal reasoning tests and a ver version of Raven's progressive metric that was specifically created for the, the War Office Selection Board to better distinguish between those at the highest end of the mental ability scale. Various psychological pointers were used to help highlight areas of psychological members of these uh, War Office Selection Boards to follow up in later interve interviews or observations, and they were determined by so they, the and the board of the psychologists were Jock Sutherland, Eric Trist, Eric Trist, who gets relevant when we're going to get to the '60s because his son was Alan Trist, who was the producer for The Grateful Dead, um, and then Isabel Menzies Light. One more thing: they included a self-description, word association, and thematic a perception test. Yeah, I, I want to know what that is because I've heard of it, but we've all taken so many tests. Like, I'm sure they could they could distill a psychological profile on us, and if they wanted to, quite easily. What's the uh, what's the a asymptomatic therapy test or whatever? A perception. <laughs> what is it for? A perception. So it's like your you know uh, like perceptibility, like uh, of uh, of yourself and uh, dynamics. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I feel like I'm self-aware, not just like conscious, but I just remember when I used to be on the radio and I'd be like, oh, I do this bad, I do that bad, I do this bad. And the guy would be like, you're so right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. Like, it's like you really understand. It's mostly being able to like detect themes and like parse out things in very ambiguous situations. Oh, oh, interesting, because I always think pattern recognition is the thing, but discernment, that sounds like it's a test for discernment, which is also pretty good. Yeah, I, I guess it would be, except that I don't really see them as like masters of uh, wanting real. Well, but I mean, discernment, if you want to say it from a moral point of view, right, is one thing, right. but discerning differences yeah. like that, that's a valuable skill, like to understand nuances. Mm-hmm. So I think it was similar to like not the raw shock because the raw shock were very ambiguous. You know, those are the ink blot tests. Um, but there's like they have these picture um, sequence type 
tests in psychology, and I don't know if this is the same one that they were using during the, just because I haven't seen the actual pictures, but I know in like IQ tests, they use these uh, pictorial references and they're often used to uh, determine social intelligence. And people who score like very high on those are more likely to have psychopathic tendencies. Wow. So people who score highly are sociopaths? Wow, because they can separate social from who they are? Well, it's because they're good at... So the people often talk about psychopaths and they say how they have no empathy. And there's an element of truth in that. But what people often think is, oh, therefore they're, you know, they don't really feel... Charmless. Right, yeah. but they're masters but they're recognizing empathy. Wow. And they, that, that's why they're such good manipulators because they're not trapped by it. So like somebody who is a very empathetic person... Uh, might, you know, like they they would feel deeply and then it's hard to detach. Whereas somebody who can recognize empathy would know how, and but doesn't get, you know, moved by it, would know how to use that to manipulate somebody else or a situation. And people who score very high socially tend to be good at not only recognizing social dynamics, but, you know, manipulating them and using them to serve their own uh, means. And Clint is saying this still goes on. He said every single Marine uh, goes through three days of psycho. Yeah. Interesting. They, yeah, the Marines are are tested. And that's interesting because I always thought like the Marines were the most intelligent. And I was talking to someone recently who was a Marine. He was saying that they're tested a lot on like social dynamics and uh, perception. Wow. Yeah, which I thought was very interesting. I, I didn't tell him that. You know, that <laughs> it doesn't mean that's, you're a psychopath, but somebody yeah, who scores. Could, like, but it could. But it could. <laughs> it's, it's a, they are looking it's, for the psychopaths. Well, and that, that's where I was going with it. because So I very firmly believe that a lot of these studies that were done, particularly these wartime research studies that were done under Tavistock, paved the way for MKUltra. And we have, you know, we have some declassified documentation on MKUltra, but a lot of it still remains covert and withheld from the masses. So we don't actually know the full extent of what they were doing in with MKUltra research. But we do know that they did uh, identify dark triad personality traits and they did figure out ways to select for them, create them, and exacerbate them. And I think it's because those personality traits are really good assets. You know, I mean that in like the literal sense of like being an asset, a federal asset, a, you know, an asset to further their agenda. Because you think about like the the dark triad, right? It's Machiavellianism, it's uh, psychopathy and narcissism. And a narcissist is, is really easy to push their buttons, right? Like you you butter them up, you flatter them, you, uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you appeal to their ambitions, and then it's pretty mm-hmm. easy to utilize them and to steer them. Uh, somebody with Machiavellian tendencies and psychopathic tendencies is also pretty easy to uh, steer them. And also, they're great leaders. Uh, so are narcissists. Yeah. They tend to be very char- charismatic. They're big personalities. Um, you know, they, I'm not saying that all assets are these traits. That's what um, I heard about Clinton, Woodrow Wilson, and even Jimmy Carter yeah. is that they were great at being doing the bidding of others because they were so egotistical, probably because they were so smart yep. that they just didn't think that they could be manipulated like that. And not that I doubt Bill Clinton really needed to be manipulated, but he actually bought into it and he thought all of these things were wonderful. 
Yeah, he was down. So I don't know if he counts, but just this idea that ego is they look for that. I think a great example is Trump. Interesting. Yeah, because it's something has to explain it. Yeah, because I I, I mean, it's not I, I I'm not. Like I, I like a lot of what Trump did. I'm, I, I think he did some great things. I think there are some things I wish he did differently. Or, you know, I, I, I think he's far. He's from- an actor, so I just don't know if he's a bad actor. But he's definitely just acting, and he probably thinks, well, that's what politics is. It's you know, Hollywood is Hollywood. Uh, DC is Hollywood for ugly people. But I don't think he's sinister. I, I actually think it's also that he's he's led. So a lot of times people, you know, a lot of people have questions about like, was he a nefarious actor or did they, was he manipulated? And I don't really think he's a nefarious, I, I don't know the man personally, so I, I, yeah. I'm not speaking, I don't have like right. goods on that. But just my opinion observing, I actually think he genuinely thinks he's doing some good. I think that he really, I think he loves America. That seems to be what really oh, my mom always says, I don't care what you say. He loves America. And I'm like, he, he, he loves himself though. Right. Too. Exactly. And he, I think he thinks he's, he has grand ambitions and he thinks that, you know, he's very important and he's got a massive ego. And I think in some ways that really served him and served the country, quite honestly. Um, but in other ways, I think it made him uh, more susceptible to being misled by, you know, the powers that shouldn't be. Um, because I don't think he, I think he was a little bit blind to it. And I think he, I think part of why he, he refuses to apologize, you know, for all of the, uh, you know, injuries from the injections and he just doubles down. Part of it, I think, is strategic. You know, that's one of the first rules of politics. Like, you don't apologize. Right. Um, but I think it's also, like, he's very proud. It's like he he made this huge business move, uh, maneuver, and it was. Strategically, it was impressive. Unfortunately, the results of it are democide. So it's like, are you proud of your chess move or like you care about the people? I don't know. Like, Yeah. No, I, I, I don't think he, I don't think he's the sinister one. I think he just doesn't realize how it, he's yeah, being I manipulated. I used to say from the very beginning, you think he's taking this country in the other direction. But what I think is he is the arrow getting pulled back. Yeah just to be released and catapult us into this reactionary future, you know. I think so, too. Whatever. So I still think, and I I would just say, like, at the end of four years, I don't know what the excuse is going to be, but we're going to be worse off. We're not going to be headed in the right direction. I don't know how it's going to play out. You might not blame him, but I'm just telling you. Because it was clear that it was a PSYOP of some kind. Nobody that that contrarian, that outside the system could ever. I mean, Ron Paul won oh, Iowa in 2012. Like, and they didn't even announce it. <laughs> like, it wasn't even part of the record until the after the RNC convention. I mean, they can suppress anybody and they they don't. They promoted him and there had to have been a reason. Anyway, yeah. that's something I've all said before, and I'm totally wasting your time. No, so no, talking. no. I, I totally agree. And I I yeah. And I, I think that that's something that they probably were uh, looking for when they're creating all these personality tests. I think that that is definitely. Um, so they then used it, of course, of, they used all of these testing for um, the OSS, the commercial enterprises, fire services, police forces. So all of our you know, uh, governmental agencies now use it. And of course, the OSS became the CIA. So I'm sure the CIA, right, I think that's a logical uh, conjecture that they use it as well. Um, and then uh, 
I, I just wanted to cover them because they called themselves the Invisible College. This group uh, who I had mentioned before, of course, it was like Eric Tr- Eric Trist and Isabel Menzies Lith, John Stock Sutherland. Of course, the most famous of that is Eric Trist. Um, and they developed the Invisible College in reference to uh, they were the precursors to the Royal Society. Right. And from there, they formed the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. So, of course, we we went through the Wellington House, the Tavistock Medical Clinic uh, or the Tavistock Clinic. Um, But then, of course, it became Tavistock Institute of Human Relations through a grant from the Rockefellers that made. (laughs) I know. That's so funny. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, all right. So, we were going to go into the 60s and uh, the, let me put, some of these notes in some sort of order. Um, the sixties were, yeah, I was totally debating like where to go with all of this. And I got very derailed into the sixties. So I guess. Yeah. I know the feeling it just fall into a rabbit hole. I mean, it's just crazy when you try to do the research, it's overwhelming. It is. So give me whatever you got. We don't have to stick to any kind of anything. I feel like it becomes like a, it's like watching a train wreck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, looking at it today, though. Like, but wait, wait, where does it go? Where does it crash? I, I have to keep, keep watching. No, um, go to Tavistock, tavinstitute.org slash the dash awakening dash organization with an S. Hat tip to James and the audience there who provided me a little bit of side research. Uh, this awakening stuff will, it's, you can see that they're manipulating the society from on high and it's not like anything within the realm of what you're thinking about. Yeah. So what do you you think about that one? The Tavistock awakening. I I think from what I can tell, it's about getting people inside organizations to follow this script of groupthink that they've been cultivating. And it it just, it says like it's a reaction to COVID's, um, you know, isolation. And maybe part of COVID's isolation was to get people to bounce back and embrace group because they were deprived, like so. being in solitary. And I, I just wonder. Well, that's part of, uh, and I don't know if we really covered much of uh, uh, Carwin, uh, Dorwin Cartwright's uh, um, work. You know, she was, of as the principles of mass persuasion. And a lot of that, I think, really was implemented through um, COVID. But it's very much this kind of uh, reactionary type of, the, essentially, it's the mass scale application of trauma-based mind control. Where, And I think that's what COVID was all about. I was wondering, so they had been trying to do these digital cities, 15-minute mm-hmm. cities, and they couldn't get employers to allow employees to work from home. And then they got it to happen. And then now the rebound of the employers once again saying, we really need people in the office and and folks are resisting that, whatever. And I wondered why mm-hmm. the propaganda didn't double down on that. Like, no, employers, you're wrong. Leave them home. And I'm starting to think because these are like, these are, they still want to control society. They're not saying they want everyone to just be in a tube trapped to a screen yet. Right. They're actually trying to shape a future society that does have a material element to it. So I feel like they're just phasing, leveling up kind of thing. Yeah. You know, digest it and move to a new paradigm, but it does still have some human interaction. A lot less, fewer people 
at the top for sure. Right. Well, I think all of the trauma-based mind control, because they, they talk about it, and it, in all of their journals, they talk about how they're taking all this research and the focus is then to uh, test it on, you know, civilian society. Uh, so a lot of this research is done, you know, under wartime research and in, uh, you know, medical clinics, mostly wartime, but uh, there are some medical clinics, psychological clinics. But that with trauma-based mind control, what they do is it's like that, that torture that's unbearable, and then you release the grip a little bit, and the you know the the person yes. feels like they're free. And yes, so I noticed free, that. And then they clamp back down again. I noticed that with myself. I was like, you know what? I can't. I got to stop with the negativity for a little while. I'm just so glad that I can whatever go out and yeah, not have to fight about wearing a mask or whatever. You know, like I was just relieved, and I had to take a breather. Yeah. Some of this, like bringing people back into the groups, uh, bringing them back into the work workforce and creating the uh, normalization is so that they can then uh, reintroduce the trauma and they'll be that much more uh, programmable. Uh, yeah, because you're afraid of going back there. Yeah. I'll do anything. I'm not going back, man. <laughs> do anything you say. <laughs> Whatever your solution is, even if it's worse than before, well, we'll just take it. Exactly. Yeah. But it literally kills parts of their brains also. So they're, yeah. So I think that that's part Actually, of it. Well, in the 60s, some people say, and I think the same thing for 9-11, is like by, by televising the trauma, which is JFK's assassination and 9-11, bodies, people jumping out of buildings. I mean, you know, they didn't really need to show that. No. But that, those are two, like, mass trauma events that I would say are the two big events that ushered in big step changes or whatever you would call it in, like, censorship, for example, and other big, big changes in our society. Yeah. Um, well, they were, Tavistock was very instrumental. We went through their radio um you know, involvement, right? A 1935 Harvard psychologist, Gordon Alper, co-authored The Psychology of Radio with Hadley Cantrell. Uh, and Cantrell was uh, Rockefeller's uh, roommate at Dartmouth. And then Alper became the, lady, the leading uh, agent for the Tavistock Institute. And Cantrell, in 1937, would become a Rockefeller Foundation funded for the Office of Re Radio Research at Princeton University, which was established to study the influence of radio on different groups of listeners. And then in 1940, uh, he authored The Invasion from Mars. It was a study on the psychology of panic regarding the radio broadcast from H.G. Wells, War of the World. We talked about last time how Rockefeller wouldn't let him release the publication of that study for a few years. Um, but then from there, Tavistock's senior staffer, Fred Emery, who later uh, in 1959, the Human Relations uh, Journal, began his article, Working Hypothesis on the Psychology of Television. And his this is a quote from him. He said, psychological after effects of television are considerable interest to the would-be social engineer. So they were studying how you could use television for social engineering. I think that's why it's called program. <laughs> so programming. Oh, my gosh. There, I, I was listening to the first Delling poll. I don't know if you know the... Um, Delling Pod, James Delling Pole in England. It's a really good podcast. He's a great interviewer. He's one of like my favorite. There's like three or four really, really good interviewers out there. And he's one of them. And the very first thing I listened to of him, so I can't even remember who his guest was or or any of that, but they were talking about this one CIA guy 
that was known to the guest who would never tell him anything about his work at all, never told him anything, what he did or whatever. All he said is, I will just tell you one thing, never watch television. Wow. And I was like, whoa. And it must be worse now. I mean, I can see, actually, I I miss the days of television when your family would sit together and have to agree on something to watch and whatever and interact with each other. Now, it's not only that we're all like, get our own thing in our own little spots and are totally isolated in that way. But what happens when you're watching, like my son who has Down syndrome, when he watches YouTube, he likes My Little Pony and it quickly like moves towards stuff that's inappropriate, weird anime and stuff. And like, so I'm wondering, just like when I read that article in Quartz about the NSA being a Google, a Google being an NSA project because they wanted to create birds of a feather around each person yeah. driven, I think, by AI. Yeah. I feel like that's just happening with what you're watching. It's like not even necessarily interacting on social media, but what what they're feeding you in in these TikTok or YouTube or whatever is can be really get dark fast. Like kind of pursue your darker natures and and nobody knows what you're doing because you're not in the same room as your parents. I try to keep the I used to have a computer in the only just one and it was just in an open room like in the living room or whatever so you could always see. But you know when the kids go to high school that stuff goes away. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't found this connection and I I really strongly suspect it's there. Um but with the cuz SEL training is using a lot of the tech ed um, so it's a lot of that, like they're tracking the student's behavior and then they're, it's a feedback loop. So they're programming them after they data mine them. And- they watch where your eyes are. There's something where they're watching where your eyes are, like with some home testing, like you can take the exam, but they're going to watch that you're looking at the actual paper and not at the, there's something like that that's like really well, actually being used. I think what they're doing that for is uh, they, uh, they there's all these videos at the World Economic Forum. The they've asked uh, like uh, the Pentagon what they think uh, 2045 will look like, and they talk about the uh, brain interface with technology, and a lot of it is tracking eye movements. So you won't have to write or type things out that the right. eye movements will. Uh, you know, interact. Well, they're probably with, training it right now. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly Fuck. what I'm thinking. But, <laughs> <laughs> fun times. I have not. But what I was going to say is that I haven't seen the connection to have a stock on that. Um, but I suspect it's there. Um, but I haven't seen a direct link to the SEL training. What institutions, just off the top of your head, if you know any, that are in existence right now that you feel are one or two degrees separated from Tavistock? So the CFR, the Royal Institute of, you know, Chatham House, like, is there anything that you're like, oh, Tavistock is connected to World Economic Forum, two degrees? In terms of think tanks, it would definitely be RAND and SRI. Those are kind of like the brainchild. Stanford Research Institute. Siri, for people who don't know where why Siri is called Siri. Yeah, exactly. And it was invented by a futurist from the Esalen Institute, I think. Yes. So, yes, and I was going to bring up the Esalen Institute. We'll get to that. Um, but yeah, the, those would be the top two, um, I would say, right under. But they... Rand and Rand and Standard for Research. But I would also say UNESCO is hu- like, hugely connected to Tavistock. Um, because, is that the UN kids thing or is the UN charity? Um, UNESCO is really involved in education right now, um, but I forgot what UNESCO... United Nations Educational, Scientific, education, and Cultural yeah. Organization. Good for you. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, but they're very involved in like our education, so the particularly in the United States right now, and they're they're trying to they're doing very sneaky things where they're trying to uh, infiltrate private school systems and even homeschool under the umbrella of private school. Oh yeah, there's a an organization called like the Association of Independent Schools. Mm-hmm that puts out memos. So my kids, all three of my kids went to different schools. One went to public school and the other two went to different private schools. And one was kind of on the conservative side, one was kind of on the liberal side. And when the COVID policy came down, they were all in lockstep. And I was like, they're getting a memo. They're getting a memo because they're coming out with yeah. it at the same time. And then I actually saw one of the memos. <laughs> <I was laughs> like, like, oh, oh, there it is. Yeah. It's from the memo. school, like the independent um School, and so they, I wondered about that. I was like, who the hell's behind that? It sounds just like the organization of governors and mayors and all of that. It's UNESCO. And of course, uh, one of the like founding members of UNESCO was Julian Huxley, uh, <laughs> who coined uh, transhumanism. And uh, of course, his brother Aldous Huxley was very instrumental. He was like one of the lead propagandists for Tavistock. Uh, and of course, in the connection, right, we have Thomas H- Henry Huxley, who was uh, known as Darwin's Bulldog. He was a teacher to H.G. Wells, also uh, a Fabian socialist, very involved in Tavistock. Uh, one of the actual initial authors who was invited to that meeting with 25 authors. Um, and then he taught the Huxley brothers. So there, that, there, <laughs> there. There you go. Uh, yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, they were, and of course, uh, you UNESCO, uh, Julian Huxley was a, a eugenicist as well. And, uh, you know, some of the early, like, you can look at some of the early quotes from Julian Huxley at UNESCO talking about uh, deep population agendas. So I see that the National Association of Independent Schools mm-hmm. does, um, you know, have some overlap, some articles about UNESCO, but UNESCO has something called the Associated Schools Network, Mm -hmm. which connects more than 12,000 schools in 182 countries around a common goal to build peace in the minds of children and young people. How could that possibly go wrong? Probably by, you know, what they say, like grief counseling, although I know a lot of people have benefited from it. Yeah. When like something bad happens in school and they, and they have all the kids, even people who didn't know the injured party or whatever do grief counseling. It prolongs the the grief for some of the, like there are some studies like that. So I'm just saying when you're trying to promote mm-hmm. so gender equality and mm-hmm. social justice, which is what they're actually claiming to, all you're doing is pointing out. Like when my kids came home and 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 were little kids and they were like, "Mom, did you know people are black and white and not." peach and tan and I was like because I would just let them say whatever they want to say oh he's a peach boy he's brown you know like I didn't never corrected them and they got like programmed into labeling people and like whatever it was Martin Luther King Day and I was like all right whatever (laughs) that was a huge uh, initiative uh with Tavistock because it's part of creating all this group identity um and a lot of the Tavistock uh members and uh were also Frankfurt School uh, members. And of course, that that was like one of the primary initiatives of the Frankfurt School was to create this uh, group identity, ident- which led to identity politics, uh, to strip people of individual identity so that you know, now you're part of a group. And of course, this is why. So, see this, what, yeah. What were you going to say? So, wait, this this is why what? Oh, I was just going to say this, this is why you see all this uh, group fighting because it, it's so much easier to fight yes. groups than it is to fight an individual. Yeah. You're one of the only 
people who like notices and joins me in saying like this massive lurch to some totally European and not at all American right nationalist identity thing mm-hmm. in this country. Like I understand, like I understand wanting a nation state instead mm-hmm. of a world government. Mm-hmm, and sure. if, you know, to just be 7 billion anarchists, you're probably going to end up with a world government. I get that. Okay. But, and it's good to like, you know, be on the same team, but I feel like it's obviously being weaponized. That's another thing I lay at Trump's feet is this identity politics on the right. And it just, it seems so dangerous because plus, if you only have two groups, if you have to be black or white, and I don't mean that in like the color of your skin, if you have okay. to be left or right, or, right. you know, if you have to be one or the other, someone has to lose yeah. And I just do not think that the nascent right movement is going to win. They just don't have the institutions, well, they don't they, have the weapons, and they don't really have the ideology. And the, well, and I would say they don't know how to play the game. I mean, they don't understand that they're the opposition is so good at playing the game and really they're being played. Yeah, but really this game is dialectical, and that's the biggest problem. So when you talk about left-right, I mean, George Washington warned us against having political parties because he said it would be a loophole for foreign entanglement. That's exactly what we have now, right? We have these puppet masters who are uh, supranational, who are pulling the strings, and that's why we have a uniparty. Um, But I would also say that even when it comes to these... uh, you know, within these different groups, and you're talking about like the right just losing, it's because they're being targeted dialectically and the dialectic keeps progressing. The whole point is to create reactionaries so that they fight against you and then they can have their synthetic, you know, that's where the term synthesis yes, comes nice. from. But it's yes, really, yes. it really even more, uh, I would say more uh, aptly would be put as concretization um, because this is really, it's Hegel. And, uh, you know, I've been kind of diving into Hegel quite a bit lately. I, I'm trying to uncover, I, 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 my theory is that he was a member of the Illuminati. Whether or not he was, like, formally or not is probably actually irrelevant because it's so obvious that he was influenced um, by the Enlightened thinkers, by, you know, very high-level Freemasons and by uh, literal Illuminati members, you know, by the, the theory of Illuminism. Uh, John Gottlieb Fichte, was one of his mentors who really, sh- I don't know if you call him a mentor, but he was the one who really showed him. So the whole notion of like thesis, antithesis, synthesis, that's what Hegel attributed to Kant. And it was a rejection mm. of Kant's notion of the dialectic because he thought that both Plato and Kant were very abstract in their ideas uh, pertaining to the dialectic and that it remained in your head. And he was looking for something that could be, uh, I use this term kind of loosely, but like a scientific method. I I don't really mean scientific, but really I mean a methodology because he was looking to advance the historicity of man. And, uh, you know, like the diagram is like an omega point that comes to, it's that spiral that goes to an omega point. You look at that spiral, like it's narrower as you get top, as you get to the top, the omega point. I see the omega point as being, you know, like the new world order. It's gone through many iterations of, right? There was the new underground world order. Uh, there was, uh, of course, the, uh, now we have for uh, the the UN 100, it's talking about the age of global enlightenment. Of course, we have the great reset. It's got many names. And Woodrow Wilson was the first president to use the words new world order, that he was the first one to, 
United States president to say that. You said concretization. Right. What did you so mean by that? There's a so the way what the words Hegel actually used because he was trying to create this, you know, as a methodology of being able to advance the historicity of man towards this omega point. He he said it was the abstract negative concrete. So those that was his uh, progression of the dialectic. And the negative translates to sublation, but in German oh. the word is Afhaben. And Afhaben is an interesting word because it's a it's really in English it kind of translates to a very oxymoronic word because it means to cancel or tear down while simultaneously preserving and lifting up. And this is of course where we get the term Afhaben de culture which the Frankfurt School codified, it spearheaded with Antonio Gramsci. Uh, didn't Antonio Gramsci has this uh, quote where he talks about how socialism is exactly, I'm going to butcher the quote, I can probably find it, but essentially he's saying it's Bush, It's essentially the religion necessary to overthrow Christianity. Um, and they, of course, wanted to overthrow Christianity. All of these people did um, because they saw it as standing in the way because the whole, you know, if we, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, the Illuminism or Enlightenment notion, but it is this idea of order out of chaos. I think it way precedes that, but of course, a lot of people know that term, uh, so it's familiar for people to think of it that way. Um, and of course, Christianity provides order, so I think that's it's really that that they were it, they were trying to overthrow. Um, but the Afhaven to culture, I was saying that comes from Grand Chief, right? It was that meeting in, I think it was the common turn. It was uh, 1922. Lenin called a meeting between Antonio Gramsci, uh, Georgi Lukash, and Willie Munzenberg uh, because he was very frustrated because he, you know, Marx said that the revolution would spread throughout the West. And after the Bolshevik Revolution, it did not spread throughout the West. And it was Antonio Gramsci. And this can be found for those who, people question me on this all the time. They're like, I've never heard of this. Where can you find that? And it's in Antonio Gramsci's grandson's memoirs. He talks about this meeting that his grandfather had. And uh, he said that the problem was that they were looking at it as an economic revolution and that it could not be perceived that way. This had to be a cultural infiltration. And this is, just to bring it full circle, part of why Tavistock is so instrumental uh, because it was, of course, John Rawlings Reese. Uh, who talked about, and I'll just read his quote. I know I talked about it last time, but I just think it's so, uh, it, it's really bears repeating. He said uh, it was in uh, June 8, 1940, at the annual meeting of the National Council for Mental Hygiene United in the UK. And just for people to know, and this is just my commentary, but anything with the word hygiene in it, I, I think you could just substitute eugenics is basically what they were doing. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, in his yes, teaching, it was definitely. called strategic planning for mental health. And I, I just think for people to understand, this is kind of the foundation for Tavistock. He was the one who came up with the Tavistock method. That's literally what they called it. And he said, we can therefore justifiably stress our particular point of view with regard to the proper development of the human psyche, even though our knowledge may be incomplete. We must aim to make it permeate every educational activity in our national life. We have a useful attack upon a number of professions, two of the easiest of of them are naturally the teaching profession and the church. The two most difficult, although they're doing a really good job of infiltrating them now, are law and medicine. If we are to infiltrate the professional and social activities of other people, I think we must imitate the totalitarians and organize some kind of fifth column activity. If better ideas on mental health are to progress and spread as we, the <laughs> salesmen, must lose our identity. Let us all very secretly be fifth columnists. I know I read that last time, but I just think that's it's so important for people to understand that is their agenda. And that is mm -hmm. part of why 
until the lawsuit with the transgender clinic uh, three years ago, no, almost nobody had heard of Tavistock. And that's the reason. I think, I mean, I'm not going to like get into this whole article, but I think that's part of this um, awakening organizations. It's that they want a call to action Uh, holy crap, potentially heralding an archaic revival that calls forth and ushers in a new way of seeing and being that undoes the mutilation of the Euro-Christian Inquisition. This is from June 2021. I mean, it's, hat tip, James. James sent me, I was just like, pick the worst. And he's like, this wasn't even the worst. This wasn't even the one he thought was the worst. You'll have to send that to me because it really substantiates my theory. So I've been talking a lot about, I have this theory that there is a, what I call the new, new age. This is not a formal thing. Um, it's just an observation that I've been seeing. So what I'm seeing in the, what I would call the quote unquote truther movement, I'm seeing there is a branch of this movement that is reviving new age type concept. They think they're truthers. And this is not to, you know, chastise anybody in that group or to denigrate them or in any way to be pejorative. A lot of them are wonderful and doing great work. And I think they're genuinely seeking truth. However, a lot of them have really bought onto a lot of these concepts that to me just look very new agey. And I think they're being targeted. I think there is an actual movement that is designed to do this. I think this is a cultural infiltration and it's a I think it's most dangerous because they really think it, it's very deceptive. And these people really think they're seeking truth and that they've, they've found well, something and it's targeting guys in black and white. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was my theory. So I really want to read that. The other thing I'm going to send you is another one that James sent me art as re-evaluation colon. Everything is scattered and it's a call for contributions to the stream at the Art of Management and Organization Conference for 2024. And it's everything is scattered and the tower has collapsed. And then it has a quote, the Tower of Babel has collapsed. Everything has scattered. We have lost our unified code of symbols for understanding each other. So they're trying to rebuild. So they've destroyed and now they want, they're calling people to bring art, which is right up your alley, to foster the new world. I mean, nice work, James. He said the entire website is that bad. <laughs> he said that I just, you could, you could go through anyway, whatever. Some of that stuff was more obvious though, gender. Yeah, well, they stuff, had the you know, transgender whatever. clinic. And of course there were all those lawsuits and that was what woke people up to Tavistock. I mean, I think most people, I would say like 90% of people had never heard of Tavistock before that. Oh, I agree. Um, so in a way that was great that <laughs> that happened because at least it kind of blew the lid off it, but definitely send me that, the website. Cause I'm going to, I just, yeah. oh, sorry. But I so I will dive into that. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> um, good. yeah, but that, that very much supports my theory. Cause I think that they're trying to create the reactionary. And I think it's also worth noting, like, you know, if you look at Karl Marx, a lot of people think that he was, he was all about communism and you know, revolutionary revolutions and whatnot. And he was, but what did he say the end solution was? It was like the ultimate liberation, right? It was like that there would be a dissolution of the state completely, that there would be no states. And this goes, this harkened back to your point that you were talking about with nation states, right? That 
Uh, yeah, it's because they play these dialectical games because they want the extreme of something so that you have the reaction so they can tear it down. And then, of course, what, what's their solution going to be? It's going to be an internationalist, supranational type of worldwide governance. Right, because they were encouraging the consolidation of production at the top. They weren't encouraging. They're like, yes, man is alienated from the fruits of his labor or whatever, but they weren't saying, like, let's grow chickens. That he was saying, let's own the factory together, which, of course, is not no. possible. <laughs> not so it's like the difference between anarcho-capitalism and anarcho-syndicalism, although you would say they converge anyway. Yeah, I, I don't have a solution. I'm I still, give up. I give up on I'm ideology. still working through that. I, I don't know that I'll get there because Oh, okay. Can we agree that like eggs are good and it would be nice to have your own growing well, in the backyard? Yes, and I encourage that for everybody. That's all. I'll, that's all. That's all I'll say anywhere. I'm just an agorist now. I just, <laughs> I just want to. I don't. I'm actually only a philosophical agorist because I don't know. How right. I, I'm life. with you on that. Although my fiance <laughs> does, so maybe they'll help. Us. Yeah, we're from New York. I, I mean, they're just you know. A tomato. The most I could possibly grow is well, a tomato. I, I will just, and, and of course, diving into this research doesn't help because then I become hyper aware of it. But I'm like so hyper aware of how I've been such a, I don't want to say victim, but how programmed I've been, how vulnerable I was to so much of this conditioning and programming. And I, I never would have thought of myself mm. that way. But I mean, I bought into mm. some, and I think in part because of where I grew up, because of my family, you know, they bought into a lot of these lies and a lot of this propaganda and passed it on to me. And even when I thought that I was, I mean, I, we're, none of us are impervious, but even when I thought I rejected a lot of these premises, I, my actions and my lifestyle would indicate otherwise. I was the opposite. My father from like the day, I, earliest memories was like, oh, they're behind everything. Like every TV yeah. commercial, everything. He didn't know who it was exactly, but he knew from the beginning that there was a big... I have a book, Backdoor to War, from the 50s, and he was in the Navy in World War II, and he came home, and within 10 years of coming home, he knew that, like, FDR was in wow. on it, and, I mean, he knew that there was... The Cultural Revolution was a total setup, and he was pretty amazing. He used to contribute to Ron Paul, like, in the 70s. We lived in New York, and we were absolutely broke, but... Ron Paul, a congressman from Texas, my father had sent him 25 bucks every election wow. cycle. And, uh, so I had the opposite. So when I was on the radio, on a conservative radio in Atlanta, and people would call like, you know, big snaps on the Bill of Rights. And I was like, wow, really? Oh, wow. I didn't think anybody, because I'm from New York. It's like, I didn't think anybody even cared anymore. But anyway, so that's what Ron Paul tapped into, which is another reason I'm a little mad at Trump, because he hijacked that ideology that was like buried deep in a lot of our minds. And he just you know, gutted it of content and allowed just the form of like anger and frustration to be the thing. So it's form without content, in my opinion, on that. Not to go back down that road. <laughs> I know people are fatigued by that. But yeah, yeah so yeah, I, so you were, what, I have to ask you a personal question. Not super personal, <laughs> but like, how do you think you broke free of that programming? You know, I, I mean, I, I keep saying I was really late to the party. I mean, I really woke up in 2020. And a lot of it actually was, I mean, you know, it was a combination of things. But actually, Tavistock was a huge part of my uh, awakening. Um, so, yeah, wow. I had uh, someone reached out to me, a friend of mine reached out in the middle of the night, late 2020. And it was like, have you ever heard of Dr. John Coleman? And 
<laughs> no. And had you? And, no. Wow. I, mean, I, I, I always make the joke, like it took me forever to find the train station. Then I found the high speed rail and I'm scrambling trying to catch up. Um, <laughs> but a lot of people planted <laughs> right. seeds pretty early. Like I would definitely say uh, even in my early 20s, you know, when I was living in New York and I, I was an actress. I mean, I was immersed in all that. I was never on the left. I mean, I was always. I'm very sus of actresses, what? Courtney. You're very sus, yeah. I'm very <laughs> yeah, sus. of course. Because you can well, act. That's true, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I you're super be... smart. Like, you, you're you also a genius, so that is probably another <laughs> suspicious factor. But I, could keep, I can keep asking you questions, and you keep answering them because you actually know. And that usually, to me, is somebody who has done the research from a place of actual seeking knowledge and truth because you, you know the natural yeah. paths to go down. You're not trying to guide us. But I mean more like... What allowed you to open your mind to it? So a lot of people were planting seeds, like I was saying. So my early 20s, and I really, the cognitive dissonance was so high. And largely because I think I've shared this with you before, but I'll, I'll share it again for the audience, is that, you know, my father really didn't talk to me in my early childhood. It was, you know, because I was sick. I think he just had a lot of his own barriers and own issues and really the only connections we had I and I really realized this in 2020 were intellectual so from a very young age he would like run upstairs and throw books on my bed and when I say books I mean I was like eight years old and he gave me the fountainhead he gave me uh Thomas Sowell like yes. you know and he not like he asked me to discuss them with him but he would mention passing in passing he would say something in conversation he's like well didn't you read that book you should know that and I was like Okay, Dad. I mean, I was eight years old, you know? Good for him. I want to know more about him yeah, at some we, point, we'll too. We'll have to, yeah. We'll have to have a personal show. I'm going to interview the, the personal, the yeah. <laughs> it'll be my first, like, you know, talk show. Yeah, we could totally do it if, if you think it'll be interesting. But yeah, so he was a hardcore neocon. And I didn't know that at the time, but... Your father, father was a hardcore, a hardcore neocon? neocon? I always thought he was a conservative, but he really wasn't. He was a neocon. Now, my father warned me against neocons because they were warmongers. Like, he was against the Iraq war. I was like, you're against the Iraq war, but Hitler. And he was like, what? And I was like, but Hitler. And he's like, can't we? <laughs> like, you're, you're skipping a few steps. Yeah, like, so my parents were the complete opposite. I mean, even to this day, my mom will say things like, oh, well, war could be good. It might, the stock market might rally. Like they're so ah! programmed. Oh my god! My mom's, my mom's oh, coming around. You know, mm. we're, we we've we've worked on her. She's come a long way, and I have tremendous compassion because I look at where I was three years ago. So I, I get you know the programming is really deep. But so for me, I'll try to give you make this fast. But like essentially, people planted a lot of these seeds, and I really couldn't see it because I thought that it would mean. Because my father would tell me, like, don't listen to those crazy conspiracy theorists, you know. And I thought that I would lose my relationship with my father because it was really the one connection we had. So I really couldn't look at it. Around 2011, you know, I I really became awake to the Frankfurt School. And it was something that became, you know, popular culture conversation uh, back then, you know, because of Obama. And I, it was something very, that really sparked for me because I was a philosophy major. And these were all people I was familiar with. And I was like, whoa, wait, that wasn't what I was taught. So it started to make me realize I was indoctrinated, not educated. And I started to have nice. a very different perspective. This was hard. It was hard to go back and look at like some of my college theses and, you know, papers and realize like, 
I majored in existentialism, which was essentially a rebranding of Marxism. Um, yeah. You majored in existentialism? I did. I wrote my thesis on existential authenticity. Wow. I still, I mean, only recently did I even like just etymologically <laughs> examine that word because I could not figure out what I was like, what the hell is existentialism? And it's something like, well, what is it? It is, and this is not, and not all of existentialism, because there's existentialism, the, you know, authentic, pun not, pun, pun not intended, uh, with my thesis, but there is the authentic, you know, notion of existentialism, which is the, you know, question of existence and the purpose of existence. And that's essentially, you know, the what the, the scope of the study would be. However, these philosophers really took it as a rebranding of Marxism because they, you know, it, it kind of was a spinoff from Nietzsche, you know, God is dead. And so now man is at the center. Right. It has to be atheistic or you would have an answer to that already. Like Christianity gives you that answer. Yeah. So Kierkegaard was one of the only, like he was a Christian existentialism and which is almost in a lot of ways, but he was kind of like, a, it's kind of an oxymoron because really what they were trying to do was a very Gnostic premise where now man is at the center, man creates his own reality, right? Like both uh, Heidegger and Sartre had different variations of this, but like Sartre talks, uh, sorry, Heidegger talks about flungness, uh, Gewendefeit, I'm going to mispronounce the German word, but essentially it means thrownness, where man is thrown into the world and having been thrown into the world, he's thus responsible for everything he does. You know, and Sartre talks about uh, you know, this is where all the despair comes from because he's now responsible for everything. Um, but the the spin on it is that, of course, he creates his own reality. He creates his own destiny. Uh, man puts and creates his own meaning. Uh, and I, I, again, all these things, if there's not kernels of truth, then they would have no validity at all. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that it really is a Gnostic Marxist rebranding of, you know, that. Yeah, it's, it's a Gnostic rebrand. But it the question itself offers an alternative to Christianity, which I think is a lot like Darwin was, you know, I feel like there was a big push to eliminate Christianity, which is stuff that you're talking about too. So I, because I, I always would, would say like, supposedly in the Middle Ages, the I, the question of the existence of, of God was like, you know, you couldn't even ask that question the way I discovered that the question of the necessity of government, like nobody even said, like, of course it's necessary. I'm like, well, can't we just ask that question? And the questions themselves are somewhat dangerous. You know, they, they will change the way people think. I understand it's the, a fundamental question, but... But there's always a risk with it whenever you open any Pandora's box. But I mean, the you know, one of the primary tenets of the Torah is to question everything, including God, including the existence of God. So I don't reject, you know, nice. the questioning of even God or the or our existence or our purpose. I don't think that's what's problematic. I would say, though, that there are a lot of Jewish people who say they're atheists. Well, then I would not call them Jews. <laughs> okay. All right. Because, I mean, people say, I remember Max Kellerman said that. He's like, I support Jewish organizations. I'm Jewish, but I don't believe in God. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. I think there... I was just wondering if the fact that you're allowed to ask that question and I'm not is like the origin of, it's not that I'm not allowed, but like I was taught by my dad. I'm like, I'm like going on a spiritual journey. And he's like, what if you get hit by a bus? You're going to go to hell. No, no, no. Well, I mean, I, I still think that you question. It's not a matter of, because even if we take the Christian premise that God still wants you to choose him, right? That's why he gives you free will. So I, yes. 
And you can't choose if you if you're not willing to explore and ask the question because then you don't really have a choice. That's right. the whole premise of free will. That's right. And he gives us reason and the understanding of between right and wrong, which is why I think you can be held accountable if you die in the state of sin or whatever, because he gives yeah. you the tools to evaluate that and the imperative. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. I went, I, I, I agree with you and I went down that journey, but I have to just before, like I have people who will totally email me like, what are you talking about? We're allowed to question. And I will say the priest who listens to me, because I would tell him I have doubt, I have doubt. And he's like, questioning is the, is the basis of knowledge yeah. and understanding. And it's, and it is a faithful thing to do. So I take back my generalization, but I do stand by my personal experience with yeah, my father. No, I, well, I think your father was more like, you know, there's the saying, the, the old adage, there are no atheists in foxholes. Right. I think that's really yes, what he was definitely. alluding to. When he was trying to, you know. Yeah. I mean, he was in a ship and like torpedoes would whiz by when he was 18. So, so I think that he probably. View, I'm sure to some extent. Right. Yeah. Good point. Um, Thank you. But yeah. So why was I able to open my mind to the possibility that I was uh, indoctrinated and uh, programmed and, you know, definitely susceptible to all this propaganda? Um so, yeah, it was in 2020. So the Frankfurt School was kind of like that one big, that really did uh, did a big paradigm shift there because I used to, I spent a lot of my childhood, I was always surrounded in a sea of leftists and I was never on the left. But then as I got a little bit older, like college, and then of course in the entertainment industry in the middle of New York City, I, I just thought it'd be easier if maybe I wasn't like, you know, <laughs> if I was like, like at least like left of center somewhere, that life would just be easier socially. And so I yes, used to say, right? Definitely. So I used to just say like, I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. That was just, it was more palatable <laughs> to people. Yes. And then they didn't see me as some yeah. like crazy demonic Nazi, you know, like, so I, I mean, really, I, I, I can tell you stories. Like I had a friend who, when I came back from uh, New York, from, from LA to New York, and she introduced me to her new friends. She's like, I warned them. Don't worry. Like, Courtney's a Republican, but she's a really nice person, I promise. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm not really sure why. Were you were I you was a Republican? Republican? <laughs> like a card? I was like actually, Republican? yeah. Well, so and so that was a big uh paradigm shift then was the Frankfurt School. And then in 2020, um, yeah, so someone had a friend of mine had asked, uh, I ever heard of Dr. John Coleman? And I said, no. And it was midnight, literally, at that point. And I was like, he sends me, he said, just watch this video and then call me back. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I watched this video. And needless to say, we were up to like 4.30 in the morning that morning. And I wow. started reading all of his books. And of course, the one that I found on Amazon was retailing for almost $5,000. I'm like, why don't they want me to read this? And so I found the PDF and, you know, for those who, nice. you know, don't like that, like, I'm pretty sure he's no longer with us. I cannot find any evidence of his passing. John Coleman. Yeah, he, he was, I mean, a couple of years ago when I actually subscribed to his newsletter, I emailed them and it was like, his newspaper is full of absolute garbage. And they were like, oh, but he doesn't agree with it. He's, you know, whatever. So he was alive. I couldn't find anything past 2012. Old. That seems to be the last of, 
I'm sure this was after 2012, but maybe not okay. very long after 2012. Which is interesting because there was an interview uh, with uh, Alex Jones, and I have the audio version of the third. It was a three-part series. I have a video of the first two, but I, the audio of the third one. And they, he, they, he actually asked, like, are you worried about them coming after you? I mean, he definitely was older at this point, but uh, he said no. And he said, uh, Tavistock has already approached me several times. Um and uh, he's like, you know, we we basically agreed that you know that he'd that he'd stop. No, that 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 they weren't he they weren't going to come after him anymore. Is kind of what he said. But who knows? I don't I don't claim to have any kind of. He says that he was intelligence. Well, no, he he claims he was a retired uh, MI six. Yeah, which yeah. is what how he got access to so much of this uh, information because he had access to those uh, you know private libraries. So yeah, it's so hard to believe that anyone does go rogue, but he does seem to have gone. It rogue. does seem that way. So I went down that rabbit hole, and then of course, so much of it really was like it was very much a shock for me because it was a convergence of all the things I was so immersed in: psychology, philosophy, and arts, entertainment industry. Right. So for me, that was like whoa. Um, and so I started just reading whatever I could. I ended up reading, you know, mo- several of his books. Um, and then, of course, my uh, now fiance was he was one of those people who was like, you know, like you, like a Ron Paul person. He was awake long before I was. And he kept like planting. He was very patient with me, um, but he kept planting seeds. But the thing is, this is why I say to people, just keep planting seeds, because I honestly don't know if all those seeds that I had that were planted earlier hadn't been planted i now because I, I had a very different perspective um and because it was just a different time in my life you know my father also had passed at this time so um i just i was in a very different place and now he's planting these seeds and i'm like i can connect these dots i've heard this before this is familiar and i was in a place where i was ready to hear it so that was very long-winded i apologize but but I think it's good. For no, I, I totally it. think that. I think people need to understand true. that you can't like somebody's not ready to hear something until it's like a soil has to be fertile before the, mm-hmm. the seeds can be planted and something's going to sprout. And and the other thing is they sometimes will figure out later that you were right about something. That's happened. I've had people come to me telling me like, I thought you were legit crazy. Thought you were crazy. Yep. And then COVID happened. Right. You don't get that too often, but I've had it happen. And I've had it's usually years later. That's I was actually taught in radio to refer to that stuff. Like it sounds braggy. I'm like, I told you, but they told it, they told us and right, like tell them that you like listening to you can get them ahead of whatever. Yeah. So I got into that habit. But anyway, it's that, I wasn't raised to like that's all a lot of the things you learn on radio are braggy and I don't like it. But that was one of the things they were like, people need to know that you that you called it. Yeah. That's really interesting. Because it gives them faith in you, and then they want to hear what else you have to say. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, so Tavistock was really a huge. So I guess we can go to the, the 60s, because the 60s were, I think, paving the way. And now, thanks to James, we see that absolutely, uh, you know, we're seeing the yes. revival of that. And I, I, I mean, I'm seeing so much of it now, because you see all these really, like, they're like new age anarchists is essentially what they are. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of that in the truther movement. It's it's a very weird combination, but I don't think in the truther movement. I call it the truther movement. So there's 
on the like the nine eleven truth or like the no. So that would be like, like the OG. conspiracy. So that would be like world. the OG. I think truth probably right. JFK would be the OG truth or movement. Yeah, there's been right, several. Right, right. So every time we have one of these mass scale uh, traumas, this you know, and I mm-hmm. and I do think this is a Tavistock technique. And through my research that I, I've done, they talk about this. They talk about okay, now we want to take this research that we've done and see how it impacts the masses. We saw that Tavistock even did uh, with the uh, it was like World War II, the bombing of civilians, and it was just to test and see how people re- reacted yeah. to the trauma. Oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> Just to see. <laughs> like what is wrong? That's why people think like false flags, oh, they would never. They would. Oh, they, would. they do. And they have. They do. And, we, and they do. Yes. And they absolutely Shit. do. Um, so I think, yeah, so there's these several different kind of categories on the like groups on the right because they keep splintering the right. And it's so I always talk about how the powers that be, they align ideologically with the left. However, they target the left dialectically too, but a lot of times their uh, their target audience is the right because they want to splinter the groups. And if they can get them to you know divide amongst themselves, they have more chance of then creating their uh, you know synthesis. And you know what? Back to what I was talking about the concretization, right? So there's the half haven to culture that we got from the Frankfurt School, and then what what they want is concretization. So it's a it's a you know it's this idea that's similar to synthesizing, but it absorbs the previous elements into something that they they call concrete. But it's a but the difference between that and what he saw, what you know Plato and uh, Kant's notion of dialectic was that he thought those were very abstract and remained kind of intellectual in your head. He saw this as you know very. Uh, it's no coincidence that Marx then advanced this into what he called praxis, right? You take uh, these uh, reactionary activist kind of theories and then you apply it in practicality. And that's kind of what the concretization is. You take these uh, previous elements of you have the abstract, this idea that's being put into the forefront, and then you have mm-hmm. the haven, which is the uh, sublation. But it's, remember, it's the Created destruction. Yeah, but it's the oxymoron because you preserve and right. lift up while you cancel and tear down. I'm telling you, you have to see the just the image on the art as reevaluation. Everything is scattered. That text I just sent you. Oh my gosh, it's so exactly that moment. Exactly. Well, okay. So, and then of course we get cancel culture from that, and this is where. Of course, you take these two, but then you take the two elements of the previous. So you take this, the idea that it was for forth, the negative, you know, the cancellation, the, the nullification essentially of that. And then that gets absorbed into this new concretization. And then from there, a new idea gets put forth. Of course, the dialectic progresses. And of course, it always progresses left towards the omega point. Um, but yeah. that's a great visual yeah Yeah. sorry i'm visual excellent yeah yeah no that's just great (laughs) yeah and it and i see it just turns left that's really clever so we had in the 60s what did we have uh it was Artie lang uh was appointed as senior registrar at the tavistock clinic in 1956 so Artie lang was very instrumental to the whole lsd movement he left after three years. Uh, it, so after three years of working at, at the British Army Psychiatric Unit. So, of course, this is what they do. They take all of these uh, psychological warfare, military kind of experts, and they're either they create divisions for research or they absorb them into future research under Tavistock. Um, then 
He began experimenting with LSD in 1960, and then in 1962, he became a family therapist for the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. <laughs> See, these go hand in hand, right? It makes perfect sense. The LSD uh, experimenter and uh, researcher is now going to be your family therapist. I see where this is going. Um, and then he, of course, met Gregory Bateson while he was uh, visiting. Oh, so Gregory Bateson worked for the Office of Strategic Services, of course, the predecessor to the CIA. And uh, he led the MK Ultra experiments on LSD and hallucinogens. And uh, he, of course, he with... Uh, so Bateson and Margaret Mead's daughter was Catherine Bateson. And he, she was like a new ager who worked with uh, Gene Houston. And the two of them helped create, this is just uh, later, but I think it's a, it's 1964. So, uh, it, no, wait, I don't know what year that was. But later, they helped uh, Hillary Clinton write, you know, It Takes a Village. So that's a little tangent side note, but I thought that was interesting. Um, okay, so in 1964, Lang meets Timothy Leary. And they author The Transcendental Experience in Relation and Psychosis. This was the Psychedelic Review in 1964. And then in 1967, there was the Dialectics of Liberation Congress. Oh, also, this was, uh, yeah, okay. So let me see if I can find my other notes on all of that. So we'll take a tangent in a minute and talk about um, Huxley because Huxley was very instrumental in the whole uh, drug and psychedelic revolution and counterculture movement. Um, but I wanted to mention, because you were talking about futurists and uh, Fred Emery, who was a senior member at Tavistock wrote something called the futures were in, in 1975. Yeah. And then there was also uh, and this was done as a like government document, I think, with in conjunction with Stanford in- Research Institute, yes, with yeah. uh, the changing images of man. And that's going to be one that I'm going to. I think I'm going to do a deep dive. Yes, Jolly West. Somebody wrote, "Yep, Jolly West." Um, so I'm going to do a deep dive on changing images of man because changing images of man was, I think, so instrumental to what we're seeing today. Um, you know, they really wanted to. Like all these things we hear about, like changing the behavior of man um, and turning them into and taking them out of the individual into the collective, the group uh, dynamics and making them part of a lot of this comes out of that document, the changing images of man. And I think what they they're doing when you were talking about like with the this is, of course, just my you know, conjectures. But when you were talking about like taking them out of the workforce and now putting them back in, I I think part of also what's going on is they're the, you know, part of this dialectical progression is going to be, then they're going to create this uh, digital world. So they're, they're putting them back into the workforce, right? Yes. And they're studying how they work collectively in groups. I think they're using also this, all this technology on the side, right? All the social media groups that are going on. There's a lot of that. And there's a lot of a cognitive infiltration that's happening within these, uh, you know, different social media groups. Definitely. Um, and so I think there's, Metaverse twinning, I think. Metaverse twinning. Allison McDowell talks about I that a lot. I don't, know I, don't you know I haven't watched her. I've seen like little clips, but I need to 
I think I really yeah, like her work. Wrenching the gears is her. Yeah, man, she's she was calling this stuff right before it happened, and it sounded absolutely crazy. Yeah, well. You know, like the metaverse was introduced during COVID. I if know. you recall, like remember Facebook changed to meta. And I mean, like right before that happened, I was talking to her and they, and she was just saying how they have kids. They want to get like computers in the hands of kids everywhere, teach everyone to code because they're building the virtual world. And they, and I mean, it was like, was like what are you talking about? Are you? What are you talking? Right. Like, I mean, you're talking about 50 years. She's like, no, now. I was like, no way. And like six months later, it just exploded onto the scene. I was like, wow. We talked about, I I think we mentioned it briefly last time, the smart cards. Um, And that came. She was talking about virtual assistants, like Kathy, the virtual, like, check-in, homeschooling, check-in assistant like so the kids know and they have to like you know did you use do you have your inhaler with you and all this kind of stuff that is definitely came down during that i think think a lot of that is programming for agenda 2050 so people can go and look this up right now it's like on there and a lot of that is um they're using like biometric data um for to revamp the like health care system and yeah, I mean, Allison is saying that we're just preparing to be in an open-air prison. That's essentially what it seems like. Well, so the, the smart cards, and we, I know we did mention it last time, but I think they're totally related to all of this, and that was done in the 90s under Tavistock, um, all the research, and it was both the U.S. and the U.K. that they were doing this, and it was all about creating the the global citizen and the the global worker, and they were you couldn't work, of course, without it. And now, it was just yesterday the EU, or maybe it was not yesterday, but it was really recent. The EU passed uh, the digital ID uh, connected to the uh, digital um, wallet. So it looks like that looks like that was kind of foreshadowing for all of that. Um, All right. So yeah. (laughs) Um, Huxley, he was the case officer for Britain's opium war. He spearheaded Tavistock's plan for the pharmaceutical control. I want to read if I can. Oh, interesting. So the drug thing wasn't just about money. It's also about yes, control. Yes, and I have a really great quote. It's socially, it's it's certainly a massive social, like, I don't know, I'm sure I've mentioned this, but two of my siblings had drug-related no, deaths. Two? So one, yeah, one died of... They say died of AIDS, but he died of AZT poisoning after a false positive of AIDS after years of IV drug use. He was completely healthy, and they totally killed him. And then, yeah, and then my sister died with a needle in her arm from fentanyl. She was in, like, some kind of uh, involuntary incarceration. It's a very long story I won't get into, but they were letting her out after 60 days. And one of my sisters and I were like calling, like, don't let her out. You cannot let her out. She will be dead within 24 hours. And she was because you can't, you know, people don't, and it had fentanyl in the junk. But I'm just saying, like, when you see that and you think like, this is the, the, this, there's no reason for this, uh, the entire country to be, and two of my cousins, in my entire country, because right. of New York, to be just awash 
in deadly drugs and have this a normal rite of passage for absolutely everyone to dabble with drugs. And some people it catches on and some people it don't. It doesn't. I mean, it's obviously they can control the society if they want to and they don't want to. So the drug thing, it it is such an, a big element of social strata and everything right now. Yeah, no, I think that's, wow, that's so sad. Oh, it's super sad. I mean, my mother had nine kids and I just can't believe that she can just soldiers on and has such a great attitude. But like it's, and I can see it in too, also with my cousins that it's just devastating. And, and I, and I, and I feel like it's a, it, it absolutely has so much power politically, socially, economically. And now you're saying kind of like that you're telling me those people oh, were in were. on it to me you know, it's intentionally a, a psychological yeah, tool as well. Yeah, and that's what all the stuff they were studying was. Uh, yeah, he was so, he was, because Huxley was one of their main propagandists and recruiters. He first tried LSD himself when he was in 1955, and he got it from Al Hubbard. I thought that was interesting. They call him Captain, and uh, who, we, I, you know, he was rumored to have connections with MK Ultra. Um, I don't know. I don't have actual evidence of that, but that, that's the rumor. Who? Which uh, one? No, Huxley? not Huxley. Hubbard. Al Hubbard. Oh, yeah. L. Ron Hubbard. He was rumored to. Yes. Oh, he. Yeah, I have a book here about Jack okay. Parsons. Um, here in Pasadena, oh, yeah. who was a Satanist and did the you know basically founded JPL right. or whatever, and he interacted with Aldous Huxley um, and L. Ron Hubbard, if I recall correctly, and the idea was they were L. Ron Hubbard definitely was like military intelligence and started yeah, a religion. That, that's kind <laughs> of know? yeah what I. Sci he was a sci-fi yeah, writer. A lot of them yeah. are sci-fi writers. Oh. Yeah, a lot of them. They're like, that's very big well, we sci-fi know, writing. I don't know if it's programming well, we know or what. That, I mean, there's a long history, of, I mean, with film and music in general, but there's a long history, particularly with science fiction um, and uh, the intelligence departments. I mean, you go, I actually, one of the speeches I just did, I, I showed like, you know, you can just go on the CIA's website and it shows you, like, you can apply for, you know, to film liaison division. <laughs> I mean, they literally have a film liaison <laughs> division. Like, oh, I think there were ads for yeah, that recently. I, I mean, this like, is, like, very public. Join the CIA, like spy on your friends, this, you know, whatever. <laughs> people are like, no, the CIA is not worked. That's, like, conspiracy theory. I'm like, go to their website. Like, dude, I don't know. Like, here, yeah, here's the application. <laughs> it's right there out in the open, you know. <laughs> Um, and they talk about like which films they've worked on and consulted and television shows and yeah. Um, so that, that's just like fact, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it was, so there was like a handwritten letter between Aldous Huxley and Timothy Leary. Um, and uh, they mentioned as someone talked about, uh, Jolly West and the, this was a CIA operative, uh, MK ultra operative. And a very good friend of Charlton Heston's. I was very disappointed in reading that. Charlton Heston yeah, was very, very he good. He was. Friend. And yeah, I know that that's I kind of like well, Chuck. Yeah, that was like my here. I'll show you how much like I when like I Chuck. found out about uh Do you oh. see that picture of oh. Chuck back there? Yeah, so you are that's, you're a fan. That's Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> Huge fan. That, that's like uh, when I found out about uh. Rudyard Kipling. I was very upset. I know. Aww, this is still I'm my sorry. favorite poem. But yeah, I mean, it's gotta what? be good. Yeah, exactly. It has to be good. To be it doesn't, if it's exactly. not good, it's and not I gonna work. I think it's it was a really good, good message. <laughs> but 
So Huxley notes to he, in this letter, he says, you're right about the hopelessness of scientific approach. These idiots want to be Pavlovians, not Lorenzian ethnologists. Um, so I, yeah. <laughs> That's, so. But it's so much more efficient to be a Lorenzian ethnologist, isn't it? Especially if you're a right? eugenicist. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Pavlov is individual, right? Mm-hmm. Basically. Yeah. So Timothy Leary consulted the British philosopher who wrote the psychedelic manifesto, The Doors of Perception. And this is what the, you know, and the doors were named after that. I mean, hello, another, my favorite, my favorite group. (laughs) Yeah. First album I ever bought. So he urged Leary to form this secret order, um, I, I've heard it referred to as like the LSD Illuminati. I don't know what it actually was, but he he did uh, like encourage him to form this group um, to essentially to brainwash people, but for the betterment of man. You know, they always believe that it's for the betterment <laughs> of man. And he said, and this is his quote. He says to him, that's how everything of culture and beauty and philosophic freedom has been passed on. Initiate, initiate artists, writers, poets, jazz musicians, elegant courtesans, and they'll educate the intelligent rich. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Wow. So Marilyn was MK Ultra. I think yeah, but was. she wasn't. Oh, actually they say she was smart. I, I heard yeah. that she was but, smart I mean, I'm too. Not sure and I, I I can see that. Yeah. Actually. I um I have a book somewhere up here, Mary's Mosaic, I think it's called, and it was about um, Mary Meyer, who was one of JFK's last mistresses, who was killed the day the Warren Commission report came out, and she was married to Cord Meyer, who was the uh, head of Operation Mockingbird in the mm-hmm. CIA, and he actually had aspirations briefly of being the president of the world government, Cord Meyer, <laughs> and... Uh, and in the and Mary used to turn JFK onto hallucinogenics, which changed his mind about, you know, opened his eyes to some geopolitical yeah. stuff or whatever. So it's I for you, I think you should. It's it was an easy to read book. Good I'll book. look that up. I'll write that one down. Yeah, it's so. I mean, I've gotten a lot of flack on this for this. I I've done several shows talking about my theories on I feel like there's a resurgence of psychedelics. <coughs> oh, definitely. Mushrooms are going to be oh, legal yeah. in well, no and time. they're doing synthetic. Don't. I mean, oh, yeah. Definitely. Um and uh, see, it's the synthetics not great, but anyway. Yeah. And it's also a little, you know, I I'm I'm I don't like the drug war, but I'm just saying they when they commercialize yeah. it, you know, they should just they should. My father always said, "Just decriminalize it. You don't have to do anything. Just don't. It should not be a crime. Oh, yeah. just, well, just back away. Regulating taxing is exactly how you get it to be oh, artificial, yeah. high, high charged, promoted. Well, bad, bad, I mean, bad. I I'm very recusant, <laughs> so like I have major issues with all like <laughs> rules, authority. I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah okay. I'm, I, I thought you're. I wasn't sure if you're saying you have a, pr- a big problem with drugs or a big problem with not drugs. <laughs> you don't seem don't like a druggie to me. Like I've done them. my fair share, I, but I'm, I'm surprised kind of a, if you've done any. I, I, so, <laughs> really funny story. But like, I, I this was years and years ago. But I was in a. I was on a. It was a first date with this guy who was a like a. 
who's I think a psychiatrist or a neuropsychiatrist, something like that. And uh, the the music in the club was like very like you know like. EDM type of, you know, very trancey. Pulsing, you know? yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. It makes me feel like I'm tripping. It makes me feel like I'm on drugs or something. And yeah, yeah. he was like, oh, well, you, you have control issues. And I said, did you need to go to like 15 years of school to figure that one out? Like, <laughs> like yeah, I like to be in control of my faculties, right. you know? Yeah, it, yes, it doesn't make yes. me feel good to be like unaware of what's reality. Oh, see, now he sounds like a predator. He me. sounds like a predator? Yeah, well, yeah. that it would that date was very short. And so he was shaming you for wanting to yeah, have control. Totally. That sounds like somebody who might be down with a roofie here and there. Maybe I, it was a very short date, and we did Just not wondering. see again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, I was, but I actually said that to him. Like, I hope you remember did the you whole need thing. To go to like decades of school to figure that one out. Like I could have told you that. Yeah, obviously. But so I don't like drugs. I don't like to be. I don't even like to get super drunk. I just feel like. I mean, I enjoy yeah, a glass of wine or whatever here and there, but I don't like the feeling of being like, I don't know what's real, what's not. I don't know what I said, what I didn't mm-hmm. say. That's just me. Um, it's not a judgment on other people, but That's great. personally, I don't like it. But what I do see is, and you know, everybody's different. Everybody's chemistry is different. Everybody's makeup is different. But what I do see is there's a huge movement, and I, especially with the hallucinogens, I think it's because they want you to have a blurred perception of reality and they want to bring mm-hmm. you towards the, you know, the pantheistic notion of all is one um, to take mm-hmm. you out of the dualistic, which is a, you know, much more conducive to a biblical type of framework. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, and again, this is not a judgment on people's worldviews. This is just, I think it's much easier to get to, you know, a one world religion, a one world government, a one world uh, governing body, um, you know, all the things that they're vying for if you expand people's uh, perceptions. And obviously it's not going to work for everyone, but there's so many stories of people like, I, I've heard these, there's one, I, I have to go back and look up his name, but he's a Canadian entrepreneur and he was a very kind of conservative entrepreneurial, like, you know, quote unquote, capitalistic type of uh, individual. And he did a a bunch of uh, hallucinogenics and he talks about how it opened his mind. And now he understands why we need to be like global citizens. And he's much more open to these types of ideas. And I think that's exactly what they're looking for. And I think it is kind of a, a gateway. And Huxley talks about this. So he says, there will be in the next generation or so a pharmacological method of making people love their servitude and producing dictatorship without tears, so to speak, producing a kind of painless concentration camp for entire society so that people will... Prozac. So that people will... What? Prozac. Prozac. Oh, yeah. Prozac. It's great. Prozac works. Prozac, and even I think Ted Kaczynski talks about it. You just you you need it to reconcile yourself with this artificial totally. So the people will, in fact, have their liberties taken away from them, but rather they will enjoy it. The soma, right? <laughs> because they will be distracted from any desire to rebel by propaganda or brainwashing, or brainwashing enhanced <laughs> by pharmacological methods. And this seems to be oh the final God. revolution. And uh, this was a Huxley quote, and he said it at the Tavistock Group in California Medical School in 1961. Wow. I think, I think that's on tape, right? I, I think it is, actually. I haven't seen it. I've only read it. I think. 
My former partner, Binkley, I think that was the first thing he ever sent me was that tape. I don't remember. Or maybe it was that or like, uh, um, no, I think that was it. And it was amazing. It was just a really, like, then out. I knew there were smoking guns. Yeah. But because of their smoking guns, they, they admit and it. And they always do. You can see it. Yeah, you can see it. And then that's why when I, I stop like trying to prove to people, like, you say they, you say they. I'm like, I'll tell you they, like. Like COVID is an easy day. Look at Event 201. You can actually see right. the people there. Tavistock is, you're telling us this entire series has been just a long list of who okay. is yeah. they with respect to Tavistock. And when they say openly what their intentions are, you know, it connects the Institute with the people, with the, I mean, that's what these articles right on their website tells you oh. what they're doing, who's doing it, why they're doing they it. I mean, it. it's all there, but it takes hours and it takes years, you know, to, to research all this stuff. And after like the 10th time that you go down the rabbit hole and you find the day, you find the proof, it's like, yeah, yeah, I can see the pattern. I can see when something like this happens and it makes no sense, it's... Exactly. artificial it's been it's manufactured creation it's social engineering of the masses. that's any any kind of alt person any kind of like hero even you know i even find myself wondering like what was you know was ron paul like the charming <laughs> bill of rights guy to like bridge us to anarcho-capitalism and you know which would later be hijacked i don't know but i feel like anybody it took him a long time to and get he up also there. got i know people say he's a mason or something, but, i mean yeah yeah but he, I think he might have been a Mason. And uh, I think that's what yeah. people say. Maybe he was a Mason. So I don't know. But Or like his wife was a Mason, which means he was a Mason. I don't, I don't really know. Like that's Mason, it. That's the, but she might have been a sister affiliate. Right. That's why they say like she couldn't have been. So I don't know. That's the only, only little thread that I ever heard. But all I'm saying is, generally speaking, if somebody goes from zero to 60 or a famous person like flips and is all of a sudden, um, you know, big time truther or whatever, I'm like, you know, that definitely... Definitely is just being yeah. Permitted. Oh, I agree. Or being catapulted. Yeah, one, one or the other. Yeah, and the, but just the dialectical thing, like the conspiracy theory, which it's true. Like the conspiracies are true. You're yeah. telling us about it now. However, being a conspiracy theorist and being in the silo of like podcast conspiracy theory, like that is being permitted or yeah or yeah promoted. I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. I mean, it's a dialectical thing. And as long as you're not going to win, they like exactly. having you there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and if you can promote some sort of reactionary response that's favorable to progressing their dialectical means. Then. Yeah, that's why I just won't go to yeah, the, I know. the extremes. I don't like it. It's not smart. I, that's why I keep reading the newspaper. And I'm like, you just have to keep your eye well, on the, so like, you know, the Bill of Rights is the thing. Just I got so distracted yesterday, like, going down a million rabbit holes, because I am genuinely seeking, yeah. like, some sort of answers. I I, know, yeah. I understand I won't find all the answers. I get that. But I, I'm still trying to find whatever I can. And I... It's so hard to stay focused and to be able to distill well, and it and it's so hard it. because people are so emotionally charged. And, I mean, and this is by design. They're so emotionally charged. And... I'm like, I'm literally just sharing facts. This is not me taking a side. <laughs> this is not me saying this is right, this is wrong, or stand with this or stand with that. Not what I'm saying. I am right. literally pointing out verifiable facts. And then there are things that I don't know, but like I'm looking for clues on. Uh, I mean, there's a whole another rabbit hole, but I actually started going down the rabbit hole of the Kazarian Mafia. And what's because one of my pet peeves is like, you know, people will say that the Ashkenazis are Kazarian. So, 
I totally thought that was true until you told me it wasn't. I didn't even know I that was a thing. Like that, that was now, not I will true. Just preface this by saying I do think our medical journals have been co-opted and infiltrated by intelligence agencies. Um, the British uh, have co-opted their medical journals. That's that's verifiable. Uh, I don't know why they wouldn't do that to American. So it's, it's again, I can't prove it. That's just a conjecture. Mm-hmm. However. That being said, you know, when you find enough, like, information to corroborate something, you know, you can kind of see, okay. Yes. It's on its face. And and you also, you look at the methodology and, like, the funding of these studies. There have been countless studies on, and and you just look at the history. But there are actual studies that have been done. And Ashkenazis and Kazarians have no genetic connection at all. But you don't even need a study to prove this. Kazaria... With, they were Turkic. So this was... But where are you getting Kazarian G- DNA? Where are they studying? They're, they're testing. Where, where, do, well, where are they looking harvesting at the, it? Uh, no, no, no. Who they're not it? testing Kazarian DNA. They're testing Ashkenazi DNA. But none of them... But how can they the compare region. it to Kazarian? None of them come from the region that would have been Kazarian. Oh, from the Rus? From the, from the steppe? Well, so there's three. The Kazarians are from well, the steppe. Well, there's three, like, origins of Kazarian, actually. Um, and I wasn't even sure it was true. I read that Arthur Kessler no, book, but so the, I think he Arthur was an MI6 I agent think, too. I think Arthur Kessler <laughs> He's a had guy. a little bit of confirmation bias. That's honestly where I go with it. He's a, he's very narrow in his his focus, and I, it's not for me to say he's wrong or if that's not necessarily it. I just think he he had a thesis and he sought out to prove it. Um, but if you really do the research on Kazaria, uh, they're Turkic people. So this is prior to the country of Turkey, but they would be people who would speak the Turkish uh, right. languages. And that region is not Eastern Europe. Ashkenazi is Eastern Europe. So they are not Eastern Europe. So Ashkenazi do not have They do Turkic not have Turkish genes. If you take 23andMe, and I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't want to out anybody, but yeah, like it says Ashkenazi exactly. if you're Ashkenazi. I'm a little bit Neanderthal, which I think is cool. Yeah, so I was like 99.96% <laughs> Ashkenazi. Um, they can't tell you 100%. That's why they do say that they're uh, definitely high IQ scores. So they're, on average, the uh, verbal, it's particularly the verbal, are um, hmm. about 10 points higher than uh, standard deviation of, you know, normal. Because I read that that's the reason why there's so many Ashkenazi and high levels of government, but I think there are counter counter theories think, to that. Yeah, like, I think there's a lot of things going on there. Um, that that might be a whole... Man, someday we gotta hit that. might be a whole show. I'm gonna have to... Um, but oh, just, yeah, yeah. You might will, have to... You might have to do some yeah, drugs or alcohol to go down their right. rabbit hole. <laughs> we can do the Vatican on another one. I, I'm down. I'm totally down. But I started going down that rabbit hole because that was, like, really, like, just glaringly obvious to me that this is a misperception. Um, and I... I think really what happened was that there's the Cossacks in, during the Nazi era, and they had claimed to be descendants of the Khazars, and they were pro-Nazi. And I think that's where some of this conflation has stemmed from. I don't know. That's, that's again, speculation. But it makes sense to me that that's where some of this confusion is der- derived from, but I really don't know. Uh, but I do know that the, the, there, is, there was Khazaria, 
and it's really the whole history of it is interesting. There was actually like you could have dual kingship, and it's a very interesting history. But if this is seven hundred to thirteen hundred, this is a very long time ago. We don't know a whole lot about them. Um, we also don't. We do know that at some point they converted to Judaism. There seems to be uh, varying uh, dates that historians will present. Like one is a uh, uh, the one I see most commonly is a uh, seven forty uh, seven forty. But I've seen eight, like 39 also. So they don't even agree on that. Um, but the, the all this just to say that there really was a Kazaria. There seemed to have been Kazarian people. The idea of a Kazarian mafia, I have yet to find any quantifiable evidence to indicate that there was a Kazarian mafia. I'm not saying that there wasn't. There are a lot of theories around it. There's a lot of people presenting, you know, this notion that the Bowers became the Rothschilds and that they're derived from Kazaria. I don't know. I have more reading to do, but that's going to take me a while. So <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Man, we could really we could go viral if we do a of couple those, of... And I'm happy to do it because I genuinely am trying to figure that out. But I think there's a lot of people... Uh, People are very passionate. Um, yeah, it's super emotional. You can't talk about anything. It's like that I has that a couple of hot to, button things. I, like even you know, as even like for me to be willing to even look at this was kind of, and I I was very open to this Kazarian mafia idea. And actually, somebody said to me, "There's no actual evidence for it." And I immediately went into like, "Oh no, there is." Like people don't dispute this. And then I started digging, and I'm like, "Okay, there's Kazaria." There were Kazarian people. There's a Kazarian king. They did convert to Judaism, but they were people who nice. uh, were Christian, Muslim. Uh, they were atheists. They were all sort. They were pantheists, uh, pagans. Like, mm. yeah, there were mm. all sorts of religions there. And so, this idea of a Kazarian mafia, though, I haven't actually found anything. I would, like I said, I'd have to do some real digging, I, and I might get some books and figure that out. But I don't know if I'll actually come up with the answer. But I'll maybe be closer than I am now. So. Um, but anyway, so back to Tavistock, of course, there was all these, there was like the, there was the whole 60s movement, which was definitely uh, the counterculture they were very instrumental in. Um, I'm going to be, there's another book that I'm going to be reading about uh, the, uh, what is it, the, it's called The Mountain of Truth, but it was all about Ascana. Um, and it was, uh, Otto von Gross was like the leader of this Ascana kind of essentially cult and the counterculture begins Ascana 1900 to 1920. Yep. So it's earlier, but I think it was a precursor to what we saw in the sixties. And it was, he was like, uh, he was actually in that movie <clears throat> uh, about Freud and, and Jung when they, they had that like patient that they fought over. It was Otto von Gross. Oh yeah. I need a link for that too. Mm -hmm. Out yeah. of Ungros. Yeah. So he, I think he was very interesting. I think that was kind of the forerunner to the uh, counterculture movement of the 60s, 70s. Um, and I think that, you know, he was, and I think it's tied to Tavistock because he was obviously influenced by Jung and Freud. Uh, he was a disciple of both of them. They fought over him, whatever that means. Um, that, you know, that they played that out in the movie. And, uh, I I do think that a lot of the, and this again is kind of just speculation, but I think a lot of what we saw in the counterculture movement did come out of MK Ultra. So that was in the 50s. Uh, you know, they claim it went through the 70s. So I think that the 
counterculture movement was in a way like a more public face of an offshoot of it. And then of course it would, they've really co-opted the arts through this, you know, they, and some of this was a like cold war research too. Um, you know, like a lot of the modern art was, uh, used uh, as cold war research. Um, they were like the impressionists and the, like Jackson Pollock was an example, uh, of cold war mm-hmm, kind of propaganda mm-hmm. and research. Um, so then we have uh, uh, Marilyn Ferguson wrote The Age of uh, Aquarian Ex- Conspiracy. And that was also uh, connected to the uh, Stanford Research In- Institute. And it was a study on uh, how to transform the United States into Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Yeah, I haven't done a deep That's a- dive <laughs> on The Age of uh, the Aquarian Conspiracy, but... I, that, that's definitely on my list to do as well. Oh, this was something I wanted to say. Somebody was saying to me, like, this was on Twitter, (laughs) but, uh, I should just stay off there. But, uh, (laughs) there was like somebody arguing with me about, they were talking about think tanks and, uh, how the UN and like UNESCO is like really involved in think tanks. And, you know, I talked about the Tavistock connection and they were like, well, I see Chatham house as being higher than Tavistock. And I was like, you were talking about think tank. Chatham house to me is a, a steering committee. Um, I don't really see mm-hmm, them as like mm-hmm. a think tank per se, but I will say this, you had asked before about the connections of Tavistock and Tavistock seems very connected to all these steering committees. So you could look at it as like a hierarchy. I look at it a little bit more like a web and I look at it as like feedback loops. So Tavistock does a lot of this research, um, and experimentation. And I think that they then codify kind of methodology. And then that gets used by these steering committees. So it gets used by things like the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the obviously other think tanks like RAND, Stanford Research Institute, Chatham House, Council of Foreign Relations. I mean, we could go on and on, but I think, and of course, the World Economic Forum, some of these ones that we hear of today, um, you know, the UN, I think a lot of the uh, the research that's done out of Tavistock is being used towards I've talked a little bit about this, but there's something called the UN 100. Um, so they're basically doing like a centennial uh, imagining of what the world will be in a hundred years anniversary of the UN. Uh, so this is 2045. And hmm. a lot of it is what they're looking to do. They're calling it the age of global enlightenment, which sounds very Tavistock, you know, um, <laughs> And illuminated, yeah, illuminated enlightenment, exactly. Illuminati, like it's all. Well, we already know. Navistock has direct connections action. to Skull and Bones and Illuminati. I mean, that's not that's not conspiracy. We've we've already. And the enlightenment and the, exactly. is a Gnostic thing, I exactly. guess. Um, but so they're talking about the age of global enlightenment, and this is being spearheaded by the UN 100 uh, group as well as the Boston Global Forum. Uh, it's Michael Dukakis, the former Massachusetts governor. <laughs> he celebrated his 90th birthday, uh, has written a book on it, and, uh, you know, he's kind of spearheading a lot of this. But what they're doing... Did you just say conspiracy? Yeah, right, right, no. I, that was good, <laughs> that was good. Conspiracy, yeah. <laughs> conspiracy. <laughs> spearheading, yeah. We, we could have- <laughs> I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to make the, put that in my glossary, <laughs> conspiracy. Co-spearheading, conspiracy, yeah. Kind of like conspiracy yeah. and spearheading. I'm going for it. I got to put that in my glossary. Okay, keep going. Well, he he's very much spearheading this uh, age of global enlightenment. And uh, it, what they're doing is they want to make uh, the 
hub of it in Ukraine. There's a whole like forum they did on uh, rebuilding Ukraine after the war. And, you know, so now we know where all this money is going. Um, but they're making Ukraine the hub for this uh, AI world society. So that's what they're calling it. It's the AI world. Wow, really? It's, it's essentially like a, a cyber Satan, as far as I'm concerned. But um, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, the AI world society. And then all of these other cities are going to be hubs that are connected. So like these uh, smart cities, these 15-minute cities. And now they have these like C40 cities. Um, so all of these digital cities are now going to be connected to this main AI world society hub in Ukraine. All this to say, um, just because I guess because I'm a doc connector, I can't seem to stay on one thing because I see the connection. Yeah, no, I think a lot of this research, of course, what they did with the smart cards, uh, you know, the Tavistock was researching, of course, all these social uh, engineering uh, research, this, uh, all the studies with the drugs. I think all of it is tied towards they're trying to figure out how to then move us towards that. I think I think that they're I think it's all interconnected. I don't think it's separate. Um but that is where the UN 100 is moving and I think a lot of what they're doing also with the the war I, this is not to say that the war isn't real or that it, people aren't really being hurt or any of that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, mm -hmm. I do think that that's happening. But I think a lot of it is a distraction and also to create uh, desperation um, and uh, to force people to then be the reactionaries to want to choose uh, things that will advance this agenda towards the AI world society. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, wow. You did bring it all together. I can't believe it. I was like, I've got this girl going in every different direction. There is absolutely no way we're going to get there. Well, I do I do think, though, that the things that are in the Tavistock I'm website gonna right now, one just up. I haven't all. seen that, but yeah. there's, there's a lot of, when you, you look at like things today, a lot of what Tavistock is doing is a lot of their, they're studying um, like, uh, you know, transhuman agendas on teens and tweens. They're doing a lot of research on that. They had a, a forum. They took it down really quickly, but it was like all about um, like subconsciousness and, uh, you know, reality versus consciousness, uh, subconscious, and then collective uh, conscious reality. They had a whole forum on that. I, I can't even find anything on it now. I think I posted it on my Instagram and then that tweet was gone. There's nothing on their website about it anymore. And it had like two likes on it. So it, it didn't get a whole lot of traction, but I it looks to me like that's they're trying to figure out like how do they progress people towards that, um, and to yeah. create a well, I digital collective conscious. Yeah, I mean clearly they're that that's what's happening. I mean that's certainly what they're trying. But is it inevitable? Do you think there's any hope? I do think there's hope. I I don't know if it's because I'm an eternal optimist or if it's because. I think, oh yeah. So the one more thing. The uh, so the changing images of man was in 1974. This was uh, right after the British Aquarian conspiracy. Um, they so the the premise behind it, and of course it was like Margaret Mead, B.F. Skinner, Laszlo, yeah, um, who were involved in it. Sir Jeffrey Vickers of the British intelligence. 
So their goal was to change the image of mankind from that of the industrial progress to one of spiritualism. A study asserts that in our present society, the image of industrial and technological man is obsolete and must be discarded. Um, many of our present say that it, what say the first the adjective again. What kind of man? So the technological man is obsolete and must be discarded. Wow! But they say spirituality, which is actually an alternative to religion, and not people think of it as part of religion. Well, I think of it as another religion, and I think of it as a religion that right. runs counter to you know a biblical framework. Um, yeah, something that's structured and objective so and clear and can hold authority to a moral standard. Yes. That's why, like, I'm just going to take my own example. Catholics are a threat because they're like, you're definitely immoral. I have a higher mm -hmm. purpose. You can't make me think that way or do that because I have an objective framework of right and wrong in my mind. Yes. And you can't, and that is dangerous. Very dangerous, absolutely. And so this is, <laughs> so when you look at, uh, when you study like Weishaupt and the Illuminati, they talked about how they specifically wanted, someone said the website changes constantly. I know, that's very frustrating. Um, <laughs> they're doing all sorts of shenanigans. But uh, so I'm constantly trying to like screen, now I know I have to screenshot and save an archive and I need to be more organized about that. But I think that, so when you look at the Illuminati, when they talked about, uh, Vaishya specifically said that the reason they were seeking deists was because deism was a stepping stone to atheism which was a stepping stone to right. the esoteric occult. So when people... Because it moves you away from a relationship with God. Deism is a God who's removed, No, right? so deism is not. Deism is this idea of uh, that there is a, de a, a deity, um, but it's not a... You're not subscribing to a formal... It's not like Christianity necessarily. It's not It's not a specific framework. It's But you believe in a creator. You believe in a, a like a centralized deity. Um, but the my the reason I bring this up is because a lot of people argue with me that you know it's secular or it's atheistic, and I don't think so. I think like this spirituality that they that they speak of is very religious. It's just that it's a it's a religion that runs counter. I mean, it's very mystical. When you look at you know the ancient mystics, they absolutely were religious. I mean, a lot of them were pagans. You know, a lot of them were. You know, you could argue they were Luciferian, they were Satanist, but that's still a religion. Uh, so I, I actually right. think it's the. I think that what's happened in our modern culture is atheism. Atheism has become a boogeyman um, because they want mm -hmm. to point the finger, mm -hmm. and this is what they did. With a lot of us has to do with our education system because they took. They said there had to be separation of the church and state, and so they took religion out of the schools under the premise that you know it's a if it's a government school then there's no place for religion. However, what did they do? So they claim that it's atheistic or it's secular, but the reality is they've replaced it with Marxism, which we know is Satanism. Yeah, and and I'm not like making that's not like a hyperbolic. No, really, you you flashed books. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, well. You have two books yeah, on that. Brand on Marx and, and uh, Kingor are the two authors. But yeah, they can't they they cannot excise the religious but like now, framework in our souls and minds and so they just fill well, it with something they, else. Well, they well they want to point the finger at the secular or the because this this is part of the distraction, right? So you you avert the attention one place while you're really pushing something else forward. 
So I, mm-hmm. they're oh, advancing their religion, their worldview, because they're aiming in towards this one world religion, which I think really is kind of a, I, I mean, I don't think you have to be religious to see it looks pretty Luciferian. It looks like that's that's what they're subscribing to. Isn't the, the Lucis Trust actually have the chapel in the UN? Yeah, they do. Uh, that's I think uh, so. Dr. Lee and I just started a show, and uh, I, I think that's what we're discussing next week is the Theosophists. And uh, oh, you're doing a regular show with yeah. Dr. Lee? That's we fantastic. Call it, we call it Dangerous Danes. We should bring you on sometime. <laughs> she was, I'm happy to join, but she was the only person who said what I was thinking about the pa- East Palestine thing about the train wreck. She's like, it's not that, it wasn't that bad. Like, yeah. the chemicals weren't that bad. Like, this is a psyop of, you know, and I was like, yeah. yes, yes, totally. I didn't hear anybody else. And then I really, she really won me over there. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Great. Well, I don't need to be on it, but I do want to yeah, listen to definitely. it. Definitely. And both. Uh, Excellent. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so great. we're airing it on Mondays. But yeah, the next uh, one we're doing. So the one that we just did was on uh, Rockefeller Medicine and so, and cancer. Do you have that book, Rockefeller Medicine? Have- you know how expensive that the book Murder is? by Injection? Yeah. Eustace Mullins? Nope. Mullins? Eustace Mullins? Oh. No. Oh, Rockefeller Medicine Man. I have the murder you by do injection. not? Well, you're probably not getting it because it was super oh, duper expensive. Okay. Insanely expensive. No. Maybe it's back down, but like something in the algorithm made this oh, thing go through the roof. Um, yeah. yeah, no, but the murder by injection talks a lot about the Rockefeller takeover of medicine. Oh, so we did talk about so cancer, true. and that was a, yeah, because most of like cancer being a shell. Of course, the Rockefellers created the American Cancer Society in 1913. Um, yeah, so that was a, but to me, it just looks like it's a shell because, well, yeah, for a lot of reasons. But yeah. For another day. Well, tell me when, is that what I can listen so to? That one will be airing, Dr. Lee uh, interview? I think, this Monday, the one on the Rockefeller and Great. cancer. And then the one the following Monday is going, we're going to do one on the, the Theosophical Society. And yeah, the Lucius Trust. So it was Madame Blavatsky who started the Theosophical Society, who popularized the New Age movement. Um, and she, her disciple was Alice Bailey. And she was, uh, she started the Lucifer, it was Lucifer mm-hmm. Trust. Lucifer Publishing. People keep arguing with me. They're like, no, it's Lucius. And I'm like, right. They changed the name because surprisingly, Whatever. it yeah. wasn't very popular. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like How they changed they... Uh, rapeseed oil to canola oil because yes, like the sound of rapeseed oil. I think, I think theosophy is the basis of um, ethical culture, which is kind of a religious thing in mm-hmm. New York. Um, and it's sad because I know ethical people who are part of yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Well, and that's, and even I think um, the new age. Yeah, this well, is. Oh, sorry. What were you saying? Just the, in Ojai, California, there was a, a Krishnamurti, who was supposed to be the Messiah of Theosophy, broke off and did some other stuff. But he wrote a book that was like about how everything, everyone is so selfish. Even love is selfish. It was a very black pilled kind of book. But I liked him briefly. But then I was like, wait, wait, snap out of it. <laughs> well, anyway, are well, very deceptive. Yes. It's like. Because it's couched in yeah. love and light, right? So a lot of really good people are drawn to it. I don't, I don't like fault yes. them at all. I mean, any more than I fault a lot of like, you know, feminists who fell for that propaganda. You know, it, it's pure propaganda. It's really destructive. Um, but they yeah. thought they were helping women. I mean, it was very. Destructive. It has to have a kernel of truth. It has to be good for it to yes. work. Yes, and that's you know when I talk to a lot of people in psychological warfare in the military, they always say that that it's ninety percent truth, ten percent lie. Um, 
So the yes. one thing I did leave out, um, and then we can yep. wrap it up because I know we're, um, was Huxley started the Esalen Institute in 1962. He was one of the people who helped founded it. And the Esalen movement, so I personally did two of those like training groups. Um, it wasn't Esalen. I've been to Esalen as well. Um, but it was, uh, they, they were called different things because there are many, it became like a franchise, but they're all the same. And they play like these Beatles songs, which of course, you know, the, the whole theory is that Ordorno actually wrote a lot of the Beatles music. I don't know that for sure, but that, that is the theory. Eustace Mullins is somebody who has put that forth. So is Dr. John Coleman. Um, but these training groups, oh my gosh. They, they seem, talk about love and light. And I remember they played Imagine every time you walked into the room, the song Imagine. I hate that song. Yeah, and yep. I remember. Imagine there's no religion, then there wouldn't be yep. any war. <laughs> and I remember turning to my sister and I'm like, this is a communist like propaganda machine. Yeah. It was like. Yes. So I'll tell you, you know, the, there, there were two different things. One, I think, was that 2010 Rockefeller study on um, the four scenarios for technology. Do you remember that? Yeah, One of them was like hack attack. And the other, yeah. And then the, yeah. Uh, so it was, it was uh, lockstep, Operation Lockstep, which was pages 16 yes. to 26 in that document. So, but hack attack had a lot of similarities with the COVID yeah. thing too. You didn't, there was another snare if you read them all. So, I, so I believe on. I'm just pulling this out of my memory is that one of the futurists who wrote that was part of the global business network. There was another one like that, like SPARS 2017. It might've been that one I'm thinking of, but I think it was this one. And this guy, Peter Schwartz, who was at the Stanford Research Institute was also at Esalen and he was at the global business network who wrote that scenario. Yeah, that's uh, right. So they're there all were, like, there that's were many the of them. So there was the Event 201, yeah. which a lot of people, and they're now working on the Event 2023. Um, there was yeah. uh, the... Uh, Modi SARS was the German one. There was SPARS document. 2017 SPARS document on the Johns Hopkins website is amazing. It it's amazing. Lays it all out. I mean, it's like... I mean, even the ice storm in Texas, like it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that was called um, All Your Eggs in One Basket, that yeah. chapter. Saying, what if there's an ice storm in Texas when the vaxes are getting rolled out? How do you propagandize people who don't have electricity? I was like, no, that's ice storm in Texas. It was like, right. you know, an ice storm in Nexus or whatever. <laughs> it was just something similar. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. So, yeah, that is so interesting. Yeah, wow, so yeah. Many. It all... There was so Modi Sars, Spars. Um, yeah, then yeah. Op, op, the Operation Lockstep was out of this uh, future scenarios from a technological age or some or error or something like that. And it was in conjunction with John Hopkins, the one you're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I have we. Oh, my gosh. I want to, like, make um, this. Uh, the name of this show, like an acronym for they like Tavistock, Huxley, Esalen. But I don't have a why. A why? I have to get oh, a why. they. Uh, it's for the they. T H E Y. Why, um, I need a why. James will think of a, a why. why. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay, so let's wrap it up. I know we agreed. We would just, uh, we could go yeah, on. Of course, man. You are a powerhouse. <laughs> See, it's because you don't do drugs or alcohol. They will slow a person <laughs> down. They slow a girl down. <laughs> well, I, I can't say that I have, I mean, I've definitely had had drinks in my life. And yes, yes, yes. Um, but no, I I think that, yeah, they definitely will slow you down. I just don't like to do loud recreational drugs because I feel like I don't, yeah. I can't, I want to be in control. <laughs> yeah, of but course. But I got made so course. fun of. Like, this was always like, 
Well, you're safer that way. And plus you had uh, handicaps. Like who wants so to add a mental understood handicap? This. Like this was something, we can save this for the personal show. But she, we, we used to get into such arguments about this because I think she just like fantasized about me like shrooming with her and whatever. And, and honestly, it just gives me panic attacks. Like I, yes. I've actually, I've tried, you know, like, I, you know, I tried ecstasy. It made me have like, hallucinations and trip every Ugh, time. That's crap. And, yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't do that. Take some mushrooms, but it don't do so ecstasy. awful. But even like... <laughs> yeah, because it's got speed in it. It's it was so up. awful. But yeah, no, I don't like... Take a Percocet I don't like hallucinogens. <laughs> and a lot of... <laughs> no, I don't... I think a lot it, of yeah. it has to do with the hearing and the vision. It's like... Right. I, I actually do better with uppers and downers. Like... Because if my mind is racing, my mind's always kind of racing. So it's not like too crazy for me. But if my body feels like slowed down or then I feel really out of control. It's like, oh my gosh. I can't. Yeah. I mean, uppers don't really alter the perception yeah. the way downers do. I like downers, yeah. but whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I'm not doing drugs every day. I'm just yeah. saying if I were to choose between like alcohol and caffeine, I would choose alcohol every time. <laughs> but uh, but yes, I mean, I'm sure if you don't feel totally, uh, like if I were a woman in a room full of men, I would probably not go out of my way to take a mind-altering substance that makes me less alert. Right. Yeah. You know, it's just, so I don't know. Um, I just want to make sure there's some a thing, little things I didn't leave out. Um, and then we can just wrap this up. The, okay, speaking of... Uh, so during the 1960s, Tavistock fostered the notion that no criteria for sanity exists and that psychedelic mind-expanding drugs are valuable tools of psychoanalysis. In 1967, that this is when they sponsored the Conference on Dialectics of Liberation. And I that I really... I, I haven't done too much research on, but... I'm very curious about that because I feel like that's exactly what we're living through now. I don't think that ended in the 60s, but it was chaired by Artie Lang, who we went through before, um, who is obviously a very big proponent of the drug use. And uh, I think it's really interesting. They keep talking about how Huxley recruited initiates um, because it, that does seem to be, that was the whole, that was what Brave New World was all about, right? It was these these classes and uh, they were going to be doing essentially like genetic breeding and create a caste system. Um, yeah. And it's well, the transhumanism is about that, right? About having different types. And I of think people. that the, I really think a lot Sad. of these uh, studies on the transgender were to are to foment the yeah. transhuman uh, movement. So, yeah. Anyway, I think we can probably go on and on. So we can wrap it up. <laughs> I love it. And I, you're, you like are hitting the road shortly, I right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> damn. Yeah. Sam. Um, so that's super awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, I can't believe that we got all the way to kind of the present day, but I do recommend I put some, I'm putting together the show notes like as we okay. speak. So I hope only because I don't, you know, when you say stuff, I'm writing it down. So it looks like I'm not paying no, attention, no, no, but I'm just great. trying to write so down the, forget. the like, references <laughs> and, because what? Because you just you lose it forever. You're we're never going to go back and figure out the ten books. But now I have them for the show notes. We can put them Great. in there, and I highly recommend people click through because I put those couple of articles Great. that really blew my mind. Yeah, from the Tavistock website in the here and now, it might go down. Like they might take it down right away. Like that's what happens with these these books. Um, yeah. And yeah, I'd like to um, 
Yeah, I will. Well, I'm going to keep going with uh, check it all out. of yeah. this research because. All right. Well, we've got a few things. We'll do more Tavistock if you've got it. We'll do. I want to know Courtney the woman. <laughs> I want to understand. <laughs> What makes Courtney tick? Because I'm fascinated. I always want to interrupt you. Be like, really? Oh my gosh, how did you do that? How do you know that? I totally need to get into that in your head. We have to do like whatever. What was the Ashkenazi thing you want to know? Oh, is there a Kazarian really, mafia? I don't want to get to the and, bottom of that. I don't know that I will, but I'll get closer to the truth. And you got to give me the Jesuit Vatican thing. If anyone can take it, I can take it. I think it. you can take I it. Can just take like it. I can take the Kazarian mafia. And yes. The, uh, yeah, because Jesuits aren't Catholic, in my opinion. Right. Like, Kazarians well, aren't Ashkenazi. <laughs> and I don't think Zionists are, you know, I mean, the whole Zionist thing, I really, I do think it was a movement created, uh, you know, by the elites. I mean, we look at the Balfour Declaration. We look at the World Zionist Federation. Oh, do you know that European Jews thought it was an anti-Semitic plot? Yeah, well, it is. That's documented. No it yeah. is. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, when somebody presented to me this whole theory about, like, the Noahide laws and about the Zionism, this happened in 2020. Do you know what my immediate gut reaction was? This, this was another friend who reached out to me at midnight, and I was like, I'm going to sleep. I'm not staying up all night. Of course. <laughs> yeah. It's, I didn't sleep for two weeks, yes. but, but my immediate gut reaction before I read, I, and I'm very open. I will read. I will look. I will investigate. Yeah, but my right, first of gut yeah. reaction was Obviously. this is a psyop designed to divide yeah. Jews and Christians against each other to overthrow Judaism and Christianity, both of them. That is what it is intended to do. That was my gut reaction. The more research I do, the more confirmed I feel in my yeah. thesis. And for me, I when I had that radio show in Atlanta, which was I think like 50% black, people called liberals called to say that reparations were the exact same uh, thing. They are. Reparations were, were a racist plot. Of course. Because, which I agree, well, but like I didn't expect action, every single right? person now to Now you, 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 you question the you know, uh, ability of the person hired or the person who got into a good school <sighs> because of their color of their skin. Oh, yeah. It totally flips it. Oh, it's totally a racist plot because then you put people in the wrong place. Well, and also now you, you put people, you, Thomas Sowell did research yeah, on and, that. And you like, also you or, create um, resentment and anger and uh, towards yeah. these people when if they had just been there on their own merit, you wouldn't. I know. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got we've got our next shows lined right. up. Uh, thank you. Have a, a safe trip. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, oh my gosh, I love it. I really appreciate it, and I cannot wait to listen to you and Dr. Lee. I'll put that in the show thank, notes too. Thank you. So, all right. Um, don't don't click yeah. off. I'm going to do an outro, but just you can go do your yeah. thing. Just leave your computer okay. on for a minute. You got it. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.